Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'm really pleased that you're here with us today because we're in chapter 24 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, which is titled Misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's Teachings. For the last six and a half months, I've been sharing in this iteration of the group learning program all the various teachings as a foundation to help you develop a framework of understanding and a foundation to help you move closer and closer to this enlightened mind where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, having trained the mind so well that it's eradicated all the pollution and all the defilements that are causing it to experience discontentedness like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, all these other discontent feelings. So I'm really pleased that you've decided to join because as part of sharing those teachings over the last six and a half months, I've been sharing with you exactly what the teachings are and using the words of the Buddha in many cases in order to help you see what the Buddha actually taught. Because using the words of the Buddha, then you can learn, you can reflect, and you can practice. Not believing what the Buddha shares, not believing what I share, but independently verifying that to discover the truth and acquire wisdom. And it's this wisdom that moves the mind to the enlightened mental state. Because as you have this wisdom about these natural laws of existence, you will start making decisions very differently in the world on your own, based on your own free will. You'll use this wisdom to benefit your life in making wiser and wiser decisions, thus leading to more and more wholesome outcomes. Well, as part of helping you to see that path very, very clearly of what it takes in order to get to enlightenment, it's important at this point to now talk about the misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings. Because the things that I've shared with you aren't necessarily taught in all the different places throughout the Buddhist world. You might think that if you're learning from a Buddhist teacher that everybody would teach exactly the same. But that would be permanence, wouldn't it? And we understand the universal truth of impermanence. So you have heard me share at different times that the Buddha didn't teach rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship as part of his teachings. But depending on where you go and where you might travel with these teachings, you might enter into a temple community and the first thing they start doing is rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And you might say, you know, what did David teach me? These people are doing something different than what David taught. And this is why I use the words of the Buddha to help you see what he actually taught. Because all throughout the world, this impermanence has affected what people understand about these teachings for the last 2,500 years. And people have 
changed and modified, adjusted, morphed his teachings. And this is why we don't see very many enlightened beings in the world because this path to enlightenment has gotten very murky and very gray. So by sharing with you over the last six and a half months of what the path to enlightenment is and then continuing to do that through repeating this program. And there's also another program called the Pali Canon and English Study Group where we use the words of the Buddha. In addition to those things and all the resources that I share, I wrote this chapter to really help those of you who might have friends that are into Buddhist teachings or you might go to a Buddhist temple or you might pick up a different book at some point or you might watch a video at some point. You might have communication with someone in a Facebook group. You might just have a casual conversation with someone who asks you about the Buddhist teachings. And by understanding what the Buddha did teach and understanding what he didn't teach can actually help you to understand this path to enlightenment and really illuminate it as if there's lights along the sides of the path showing you exactly what the path is. So by sharing this content, you won't veer off the path and get into all these misunderstandings. And as I share the misunderstandings today, I'll be sharing with you how the Buddhist teachings are in conflict with what you might see in the world in some venues or some communities or in some situations. So let's go ahead and start talking about the Buddhist teachings and how all of this challenge of impermanence has affected the Buddhist teachings and why it is that we see so many misunderstandings in the world. Well, there's three primary forms of traditions or ways that people share these teachings in certain communities. There's what's called the Theravada Buddhist tradition, there's the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, and there's Vajrayana Buddhist or Vajrayana Buddhism. These three major traditions and all the different offshoots are all teaching something very different. Even within each tradition, from teacher to teacher, temple to temple, you can have very different take on the teachings. And the reason why this occurred is basically we have 2,500 years worth of impermanence from the lifetime of the Buddha until now, there's been all these oral teachings that have been handed down from person to person to person. And in an oral tradition, it's very easy for things to get lost, things to get modified, things to get changed. The way that you know that you're learning the truth or not is when you learn, you reflect to independently verify the teachings, and then you practice and see if the teaching actually helps improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life. And when you observe that the discontentedness in the mind is gradually diminishing, that's how you know you're learning the truth and it's the real true path to enlightenment. Whereas if you learned you know, somebody to sprinkle some water on you and this is going to create better life for yourself, well, maybe you've done that or maybe you've experienced that or maybe you would ask that person, how does sprinkling water on me help to improve the condition of my mind? So you can kind of look at these things in independent verification and see what is true and what is false and as you see the condition of the mind gradually improving, that's how you know you're learning the true actual teachings of the Buddha. But because of this 2,500 years of impermanence, you're going to see lots of different aspects of how people present these teachings. It's the Theravada Buddhist tradition that people feel is the Buddhist teachings that are closest to the lifetime of the Buddha that existed during his lifetime. Because during the lifetime of a Buddha, a true Buddha, they would make it very, very clear for their students of what enlightenment is and what it isn't. 
they would also make it very, very clear of what are the true teachings that lead to enlightenment. And then after a Buddha's death, there can be the degrading of their teachings over time, which the Buddha actually predicted during his lifetime. He gave guidance of how to sustain his teachings in the world for as long as possible, but he actually knew that his teachings were going to degrade over time. And then as they degrade, then there would be a new Buddha who would arise and restore his teachings back into the world in a way that would help all of humanity to get to enlightenment. It's this Theravada Buddhist tradition, which is primarily hosted in South Asia and Southeast Asia, places like Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand. There's places like Southern Vietnam. These are all places that are practicing Theravada Buddhist teachings. And in reality, these teachings have spread all throughout the world. You can find them pretty much everywhere. But these are the places where they're the most vibrant. Even in Sri Lanka, they have these Theravada Buddhist teachings. And Theravada means teachings of the elders. And we call it that because the teachings that we practice are considered to be the form of the teachings that date back closest to the lifetime of the Buddha. It's the Pali Canon or the Pali Text, which is the original source teachings of the Buddha. And Theravada Buddhism considers that text to be the authoritative source of what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime. But even in that text, we don't necessarily have every single thing that the Buddha taught. And we don't necessarily know what the translations have been over time for 2,500 years. This is why practice of the teachings is so important. Because when you read a book and you see that someone says, these are the words of the Buddha, that's what they say. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And that's why I share with students not to believe anything that I share, but instead to learn it, reflect on it, and practice so that you can see the truth for yourself. A teacher may feel that they're sharing the teachings that are the teachings of the Buddha, but they should have practiced those in order to see the condition of their mind gradually improve to get to this enlightened mental state. And if they've done that work, then that means their students can do that same exact work and see the benefits as well. So that's why I always invite students to not believe what I say, but to learn, reflect, and practice. This Theravada Buddhist tradition used to be called Hinayana. You'll see this sometimes in different books and different places. People will still occasionally use this term Hinayana. And this means the lesser vehicle. People came up with this uh, later on as a way to kind of degrade Theravada Buddhism and kind of make people look down on it because they considered it to be too long of a process to actually attain enlightenment through what the Buddha taught because it's a gradual progression. It's gradual training, gradual practice, leading to gradual progress. And you can gradually see the mind evolving. And this is what the Buddha taught during his lifetime, that you can't just snap your fingers and attain enlightenment, even though this is one of the myths that exist in the Buddhist world. So later, as new teachings started to be formed after the death of the Buddha, people were changing his teachings and modifying his teachings, not realizing that they were actually causing harm to these teachings and causing harm to the people that they shared them with. In some cases, there were intentional modifications to his teachings that later became known as Mahayana Buddhism and Vajrayana Buddhism. 
And in some cases, they were changes and adaptations that have happened gradually without the person necessarily realizing that's what they're doing. That in an oral tradition, when things are handed down from person to person to person over multiple generations, the story can kind of slightly change and slightly change. The teachings can slightly change. If you've ever been in a classroom environment as a child and your teacher created a circle and she whispered into the student's ear next to them, the pink elephant jumped over the brown fence and broke his leg. And then the people are supposed to whisper it all the way around the entire circle. By the time it gets back to the teacher, it's like the yellow tiger jumped over the tall building and ate some blueberries or something like this, right? The, the story changes by the time it goes all the way around the circle. And this is essentially what's happened over 2,500 years. And the Buddha predicted that this indeed would actually happen. So in the Mahayana tradition, as you get further and further away from what the Buddha taught, which was created about a thousand years after the death of the Buddha, this is primarily hosted in East Asia, like in China. And this is called the greater vehicle. People in this tradition feel like they can actually attain enlightenment much faster, and it's called the greater vehicle. And then there's this tradition called Vajrayana Buddhism. If you're familiar with the Dalai Lama, this is the form of Buddhism that he practices. It's primarily hosted in Tibet, Bhutan, Mongolia, and the Russian Republic of Kalmykia. And as I mentioned with Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism and Vajrayana Buddhism are really practiced all throughout the world. In Vajrayana Buddhism, they really got far away from what the Buddha taught. You will see lots of rites and rituals and ceremonies. You will see a lot of prayer to the Buddha. You will see different types of Buddhas. You will see different imagery. A lot of ceremony and worship is part of this tradition. And they call this the lightning fast vehicle, meaning it will get you to enlightenment lightning fast. But I don't know that that's necessarily true. I have never practiced Mahayana or Vajrayana Buddhism. I know a little bit about them. I know enough of what's on the surface, but I don't know enough of the detail to know that this is necessarily true. And from my perspective, that if we change or modify a Buddhist teachings, then we're not going to be able to experience enlightenment. It's only a Buddha who awakens through their own independent journey that discovers declares and is the originator of the path to enlightenment. They essentially are the inventor of the path to enlightenment, so to speak, because they discovered what the true path is and they can articulate it through their independently discovered wisdom. Once a Buddha dies and people start modifying and changing his teachings, they're just making the path more and more muddy for everyone else. So these other traditions oftentimes have all these different beliefs and all these different practices and all these different things that can oftentimes make it very challenging for someone to see what is the very true path to enlightenment. All these different traditions will honor and respect Gautama Buddha as the founder of their tradition, but how they actually explain the teachings in terms of what the problems are and what the solutions are is very different. In the Theravada Buddhist tradition, we understand that the problem is this ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. The mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. And it has this craving and anger and this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality that causes the mind to continue to experience this discontentedness. And it's wisdom that leads to the improvement of the condition of the mind through learning, reflecting, and practicing, independently discovering the truth, 
we then are able to make wiser decisions and improve the condition of our mind by training it and removing the pollution that's causing the mind to experience this discontentedness. By the time you get to Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism, it becomes about prayer and worship and rites and rituals and ceremonies and things like this that the Buddha actually discouraged and shared during his lifetime that these things don't lead to the elimination of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. Therefore, they can't change the condition of the mind. This little map that I'm sharing here is showing kind of the origin of where the Buddha existed during his lifetime, which he was born in what we call Nepal today, but that wasn't a country during the lifetime of the Buddha. And he spent time there and he spent time in what we call Northeastern India. And from there, you know, during his life and after his death, the teachings start to spread all throughout the world. This map is just one that I downloaded off of the internet. It's not necessarily showing an accurate representation of exactly where the teachings spread. It's just kind of giving you something to understand. Because, for example, what we mostly think happened is the teachings from where Gautama Buddha originates came down to Sri Lanka, which is that point at the bottom of India. And then from there, we think that the teachings moved from Sri Lanka over to Thailand. And Thailand is the largest population of Theravada Buddhist practitioners and teachers anywhere in the world. Here in Thailand, there's 70 million people in the population, and there's 95% of them consider themselves to be Buddhist practitioners. There's over 40,000 temples in the landmass that is actually smaller than the state of Texas. So in a landmass smaller than the state of Texas, there's over 40,000 temples with about 30,000 or so of them being in use. And there's about 300,000 ordained practitioners here in Thailand. So here in Thailand, it's really the largest, most vibrant community of Theravada Buddhist practitioners and teachers that you'll find anywhere in the world. Even though these teachings have spread all throughout the world, Thailand has really become the real host country for these teachings to be shared vibrantly in the world throughout all these different places and people that are interested in learning the Theravada teachings. And then for the Mahayana tradition, again, it's China. And then for the Vajrayana tradition, it's Tibet, Bhutan, Mongolia, and the Russian Republic of Kalmyki is where you'll see the largest concentration of people practicing these given traditions. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about anything that I've shared so far about these different traditions, which will help lead us into the further discussion that we have today to talk about the misunderstandings of the teachings. And I shared this with you to help you understand the reason why we have these misunderstandings. We have these misunderstandings because of the universal truth of impermanence. We have these misunderstandings because of craving in the mind of people who wanted the teachings to reflect their opinions and their views. And we also have these modifications to the teachings based on ego and people thinking that they're smarter and wiser than an actual Buddha and they're modifying and changing the teachings over time. So if you guys have any questions on this, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom and I'll answer your questions for you. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions directly. Hello, teacher. Is there a kind of aesthetics for the total number of those who consider themselves practicing the uh, Gautama Buddha's teachings? From what I've seen, the world thinks that there's about 500 million Buddhist practitioners in the world. 
and this is Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, as well as all the offshoots. I see that just continuously growing and growing and growing, but it looks like there's about 500 million people in the world. In terms of Theravada Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism is actually considered to be the smaller amount of people. So between the countries that I mentioned, like Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, and Southern Vietnam, there's the smallest number out of that 500 million. And I suspect the reason why is because to attain enlightenment, it's a lot of work. And if you really learn and understand the Buddhist teachings, it's a lot of work and effort to actually apply them in practice and evolve the mind and do the work that it takes to get to enlightenment. Where later, as, as these other traditions started to form, they started to incorporate things that really didn't require a lot of work, like rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. But these things don't actually lead to enlightenment as far as I'm concerned. And it would only be the Theravada teachings that would lead someone to experience the enlightened mental state. Do you think that Gautama Buddha had a certain plan to share his teachings in these certain cultures or communities? The Buddha, during his lifetime, suggested to the ordained practitioners that they roam and they wander, they go on these journeys and share his teachings with those people who are interested to learn them. He didn't have any specifics about where they should be shared or where they shouldn't be shared. He knew that his teachings someday would reach the entire world, but it wouldn't be during his lifetime. So he needed to share the teachings vibrantly enough during his lifetime that the teachings would be learned and practiced and there would be enough enlightened beings who would deeply understand the teachings and be able to share them to a certain degree. And then the Buddha knew that it would be 2,500 years later that a new Buddha would arise, they would awaken, and then they would share his teachings into the world in such a way that they would be learned and practiced throughout the entire world. And over time, all of humanity would actually experience enlightenment. Thanks, sir. Let's go to Nick. Thank you, Bassam. Hello, teacher. We have a question on Facebook. From Joseph, he writes, Hello, David. What is the difference between lesser and greater vehicle? So these are just terms that people use to represent Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. And the vehicle that they're talking about is in terms of how quick or how slow it takes to get to enlightenment. But this is a misunderstanding of the Buddhist teachings because anybody who's thinking about getting to enlightenment quickly they haven't understood the Buddhist teachings because you can't hurry up and get to enlightenment. It's not possible. Enlightenment is a gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. These are actually the words of the Buddha. He used these three phrases when he talks about the progression of an unenlightened being going to enlightenment. He says it's gradual training, gradual practice, leading to gradual progress. So even though people look down on this tradition of Theravada Buddhism and they call it a lesser vehicle, that's because they're trying to make their Buddhism look the best and call it a greater vehicle or a lightning fast vehicle. So those things are not actually part of the Buddhist teachings. It's just a way to kind of denigrate other traditions and say, what I've got is better than everybody else and you should learn this lightning fast vehicle. But anybody who's talking about enlightenment in terms of being lightning fast, that's what I share. They've grossly misunderstood the path to enlightenment because there's nothing about enlightenment that is fast or quick because the mind has this pollution and it needs to be gradually trained 
away in order to eliminate it from the mind. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. Well, let's talk about some of these misunderstandings as it relates to the Theravada tradition, because even within the Theravada tradition, and we'll talk about some from other traditions towards the end, but mainly what I focus this chapter on is helping you to understand the misunderstandings within the Theravada tradition, because even within the Theravada tradition, there's misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings. And as long as somebody thinks that what they're learning and practicing is the actual teachings of the Buddha, those things can actually hinder you from attaining enlightenment because that means there's still ignorance or the unknowing of true reality in the mind. So since that's the primary hindrance that is keeping the mind in the unenlightened state, we need to learn, reflect, and practice to acquire wisdom to understand what it is that are the teachings of the Buddha in order to get to enlightenment. And part of that is pulling back the covers on someone's own tradition, which I teach the Theravada tradition, is pulling back the covers on that, seeing it for what it really is very clearly, because in doing so, we're practicing loving kindness and compassion for all beings to be able to explain what are the true teachings and what is it that the Buddha taught and what he didn't teach. Because you would think that every single temple in Thailand, for example, would have copies of the Buddhist teachings and every single monk would study those teachings very closely and every single monk would practice them very closely. Well, that would be permanence, wouldn't it? And we know the universal truth of impermanence. The other challenge with that is, is oftentimes if you come from a background of Christian teachings or Muslim teachings, there's the Bible and there's the Quran. And it's just this kind of like one book in terms of the Bible. I'm not sure about the Quran, if that's one book or not. Yes, it is. Blossom's shaking his head. Yes. So there's just kind of like this one book. And inside the Bible, there's actually 72 different books within that one little book. So you would think that because in America at one time, if you travel around, every single hotel room had a holy Bible in it at one time or another. If you were a kid traveling around, you would just think that the Buddhist teachings must be everywhere in a place like Thailand that has 70 million people and 95% of them are Buddhist practitioners and there's all these teachings. You would think that everybody and anybody would know and have access to the teachings of the Buddha. But in reality, these books that the Buddha teachings are contained in, they're 45 large volumes that are about six inches thick each. And not every temple takes the time to get access to these and have them at their temple. And not every single ordained practitioner and every single household practitioner takes the time to investigate these teachings. And this is one of the reasons why I created this book series, The Words of the Buddha, because it extracts the most important teachings out of those 45 volumes of books, puts them into 13 books that are accessible, and now they can be widely distributed throughout the world and they can be accessible to everybody and anybody. So even though there's this enormous amount of temples and practitioners and ordained practitioners in a place like Thailand, not everybody takes the time to get access to the Buddhist teachings or even knows where to get access to the Buddhist teachings. And even if they did, they're so voluminous and so large, it takes a lot of money to be able to have access to these teachings and have them at a place like a temple. So it requires a lot of 
time, effort, energy, and resources, and also wisdom to be able to have access to these teachings that just doesn't exist in the world. So even within the Theravada Buddhist tradition, from temple to temple, you will see a lot of differences in how they share these teachings. One of the things that you will see at a lot of temples in the Theravada tradition is this first misunderstanding that I call the pouring water ceremony. In Thai, we call this Guatnam. What the belief is here is that if you make a offering of time, effort, energy, or resources as a way to create merit and share the teachings of the Buddha throughout the world, they believe that after you make that offering, that you get this little urn of water and you pour it out as the monks are chanting, and that's going to transfer the merit that you've accumulated in that situation to other people, like your dead relatives. This is 100% false. This is absolutely not true. It's not something that the Buddha taught. The reason why generosity in the production of merit is so beneficial is that it's helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. It's one of the primary practices that we have in order to eliminate discontentedness of the mind is through eliminating craving, desire, attachment by practicing generosity. When we practice generosity and we produce merit, we're actually giving our time, effort, energy, and resources without any expectation of anything in return. And this helps train the mind to eliminate selfishness. Well, there's no way that you can transfer that to somebody else, especially a dead relative. You can't pour out a little bit of water and transfer the fact that you have now become more generous. You have now reduced your selfishness. You now no longer have as much craving, desire, attachment in the mind. This mental longing, strong eagerness has been eliminated through practicing generosity. You can't transfer that to somebody else. Each individual has to practice generosity for themselves in order to produce the benefits of reduced craving, desire, attachment, and to produce the benefits of merit to share the teachings into the world. So this is something that is just not possible, and it's a misunderstanding of the teachings. The second one is something called blessed water. In a Christian setting, we might call this holy water. And in Thai, they call it namon. What this is, is that in big events, as they do different things in the temples, monks will essentially have this bowl of water. They will light a candle and drip wax into the water, and they think that they're creating this blessed water or this holy water. And then at some point during the event, they will dip this uh, straw thing. It looks like kind of like the end of a broom where they will dip it into the water and then they will sprinkle this water out on all the people. And what they believe is that this water is helping to purify them. Well, the Buddha actually talked during his lifetime about this because it's something that was happening amongst the Hindu practitioners. And this is why it ultimately gets incorporated into Buddhism after the death of the Buddha, that it was still happening, it was still around, and people end up incorporating it into Buddhism. But the Buddha talked about it during his lifetime, and I actually put this in volume 12 of the book series. The book, volume 12, is titled Lowly Arts. The Buddha talks about these lowly arts, these low things that don't actually produce enlightenment and actually mislead people to believing one thing or the other. And he talks in there about how he refrains 
from creating any kind of blessed water or holy water. And he encourages and guides his ordained practitioners to do the same, is to not actually do this. Don't consecrate building sites. Don't sprinkle this blessed water. But during his lifetime, as he taught this, those practitioners and students that ultimately got to enlightenment would have known this and would have practiced this. But then as he died and several hundred years later, these things all got merged in together. And this is why you will see even here in Thailand in many Theravada Buddhist temples, even in places like Sri Lanka and Myanmar and Cambodia, Laos, Southern Vietnam, all those places, you will see oftentimes ordained practitioners doing this. And if you're around this, it's not going to hurt you. It's not going to harm you. But you need to know in the mind that if you see any of these things that I'm sharing today, that you understand that this isn't what leads to enlightenment, despite what people might share and what they might tell you. And you can see the words of the Buddha in volume 12 of the book series, where he specifically talks about this one in detail. And he says that he refrains from doing it and he guides his ordained practitioners to do the same. This third one, in Thai, we call it Sai Sin, or you might describe that in English as a sacred thread. What the belief is here is that when you go to the temple, you go visit an ordained practitioner and they tie this string around your wrist and they believe that this has somehow got some special powers and it's going to somehow improve your life and improve your mind. And people wear these strings on their wrist for an extended period of time. Sometimes you can see people that have many, many, many of these on their wrist and they think that this string has some special unique power. But the Buddha never taught this. There's nothing inherent about another human being tying a piece of string on your wrist that is going to fix the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality in your mind. If your mind is experiencing anger, frustration, and guilt, and shame, and fear, and all these other things, there's nothing that a piece of string is going to do in order to eliminate that from the mind. But you'll see this here in Thailand, that people will tie these strings on the human body. They will tie them around trees. They will tie them around their house. Some people will take this string and put it around their house. Some people will put it in their car, thinking that it's going to protect their car so they don't get in a car accident and things like this. This is all superstition. You will see in volume five of the book series, and you also see in volume 12, where the Buddha talks about superstition and auspicious things like this doesn't lead to enlightenment and somebody who even needs to get to the first stage of enlightenment. Remember, there's four stages. To even get to the first stage of enlightenment, somebody would need to understand and practice what's called right view. And part of right view is to understand that these auspicious, superstitious type things doesn't lead to enlightenment. In order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, you have to eliminate the first three fetters or the first three taints or pollutions of mind. The first one is called personal existence view. The second one is doubt. And the third one is wrong behavior and observances. Wrong behavior and observances relates to rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. If somebody thought that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is what's leading to enlightenment, then their mind is still diluted. It's still confused. It still has this ignorance or unknowing of true reality because they're not learning, reflecting, and practicing to improve the condition of the mind. These type of things and others were happening during the lifetime of the Buddha and is why he knew that they don't lead to enlightenment. 
During his lifetime, there were Brahmin priests that were part of the Hindu tradition that were practicing all kinds of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And even today, there's still these things going on in the world in multiple different traditions. And people believe that if you perform these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, that things will get better. But we can test that for ourselves. You can do these things and look and see, is your life getting any better? And is the world in the condition of the world getting any better? Because if these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is improving the condition of your mind, therefore it should be improving the condition of the world. And we should see that the world is progressively getting better. And is that what we see? Do we see people living in more harmony, more peace, more love, more kindness, more friendliness, more respect amongst each other? Or are we seeing the opposite? Are we seeing more impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespect? Are we seeing more hate and more aggression in the world? So these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship was happening during the lifetime of the Buddha in these other traditions. And he was advising people that these things don't actually lead to enlightenment and then helping them with the teachings that actually do lead to enlightenment. And then as people learned and practiced what he taught, they could see the truth for themselves that the condition of their mind was improving through learning and practicing his teachings which was devoid of any rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, such as those that I'm sharing here today. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about these three. Remember, you can just put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom to ask any questions that you like. Let's go to the next one. Thank you, boss. Teacher, I was wondering, can someone uh, or a practitioner or anybody participate in any of these things or wear a sacred thread knowing that it doesn't lead to enlightenment and still attain like the first stage of enlightenment? Yes, it's not about the participation in the event. It's about what the mind understands as wisdom. So if you went to an event and there was, you know, 5,000 people that were getting all this water sprinkled on them and that water got sprinkled on you, it's not like the Wizard of Oz that's like, oh, I'm melting, I'm melting, you know, oh my goodness, I'm no longer going to get to enlightenment. It's not that. It's just that, okay, when the water comes on you, you just know like, okay, that's just water. That's all it is. It's just water. It's just like rain. It's just water. Your mind knows that this isn't going to lead to enlightenment, that you need to learn, reflect, and practice in order to produce the results and experience enlightenment. So any of these things that you might experience, as long as the mind knows and doesn't have that misperception or that misunderstanding that these things are what's going to lead to enlightenment, you could still participate in them and just know that they're not what leads to enlightenment and then do what you know leads to enlightenment. But you have to be very careful about that because it's kind of a slippery slope that if you start going into these kind of things, the mind can maybe run away from itself or maybe you're kind of setting an example for the people around you, like your children or your partners and things like this. And they might think that this is part of the teachings. If they see dad doing this or mom doing these things or brother or sister doing these things, they might actually follow along without having that same understanding that you have. So in my opinion, I would guide a student to not participate in any of these things. Not that you have to be aggressive or hostile or angry when these things are happening, but just choose to kind of distance yourself from them. I go into temple environments all the time and they'll be doing 
all different kind of number of things sometimes. And I just kind of stand by as an observer and kind of watch what's going on and kind of observe what's happening. The reason why I know that these things don't lead to enlightenment is because I used to do all these things. I did all these things. I poured this water into this little urn many times. I actually sprinkled water on people and I held the bowl for ordained practitioners to sprinkle water. I had many strings tied around my wrist. And this is how I know that these things don't actually lead to enlightenment because when you do these things and you observe the condition of the mind before and after, there's no actual improvement to the condition of the mind. So you need to deeply understand what it is that leads to enlightenment. And then I would encourage people to not do them so that that way you and the people around you can clearly see what is the path to enlightenment. Follow up to this, uh, Venerable Sir, and and kind of an offshoot to the sacred thread. Suppose um, the motivation wasn't about enlightenment and say, that they believed or, or uh, say it was the sacred thread or, or crystals, some people wear those. Um, if, it, if they're wearing it for something like protection, is there any harm in that if it's not about enlightenment, but they're on the path to enlightenment? That's still wrong view. If you're wearing some object and you think that that's going to protect you, it's not possible for that to occur, like a crystal or something like that, or a piece of jewelry. It's not possible for these things to protect you because there's not any being that is controlling what does and doesn't happen to you what's happening to you in your life is based on your own decisions your own choices it's the natural law of gamma so if somebody puts a bracelet on thinking that that's going to protect them then they're not understanding the natural law of gamma they haven't yet established right view therefore they're not even going to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment if they're thinking that this crystal is going to somehow protect them because they don't yet understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, and action and result, the results of our decisions. One more um, question comes to mind uh, uh, for clarification. What if um, someone has encounters with um, uh, afflicted spirits and they burn sage and then they notice that these spirits go away? It's the same thing. The burning of sage isn't going to necessarily create any benefit for you because your goal is to remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations. You can't get to a situation where you permanently don't have afflicted spirits around you. It's not possible. So if the mind is having aversion to these spirits and feeling like I need to burn some sage in order to get rid of these things, then the mind is misunderstanding what the real problem is. The real problem is the mind's craving, desire, attachment to have things in the world be a certain way, and it's only content if these things are occurring. So these afflicted spirits will come and go as they please. We can't wear a crystal, we can't burn sage, we can't do these other things to create the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy in our mind. We need to train the mind to reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy no matter what is or isn't happening, being satisfied with what is. Another way to explain this is if you go out of your house and you see mosquitoes that are around and the mind becomes discontent because of the mosquitoes, well, this is the mind craving for things to be a certain way. So your example is using afflicted spirits, but if we use something like a mosquito, it doesn't mean that we can't take action to have the mosquitoes go away, 
because maybe we're concerned about the diseases that they carry and we're not interested in getting bitten and things like this. But we need to understand what is the true problem that the unenlightened mind is experiencing, which is this craving for permanence and having this aversion and pushing things away, where if somebody is practicing right view very deeply and afflicted spirits come around, they wouldn't feel any problem with that because if they're practicing the teachings very closely, they know that they're not causing any harm to these afflicted spirits. So these afflicted spirits can't cause harm to you. So there's no reason to push them away with something like sage because they're not going to cause you any harm. Whereas if the mind is fearful of these afflicted spirits, then we might use sage in order to get rid of them and move them away. And someone who's practicing right view very deeply and understands the natural law of gamma, then they know that as long as I don't cause harm to these afflicted spirits and they're not going to cause harm to me, they would like to come and go, let them come and go, so be it, and just be content and satisfied with what is. Thank you, Teacher David. We have uh, some questions on Facebook. Parikh said he writes, Venerable Teacher, would you please tell about protective verses, chants mentioned in the words of the Buddha? We're going to get Atiyana to Suta We're going to get to that uh, here as we go forward in today's class. We're going to talk about chanting and matras. Uh, another class, you said? No, uh, in today's class. In today's class, at the end, save that for the end. Uh, not for the end, but I'll get to it as part of our our content okay. today. All right, and uh, Rick writes. It seems to me that these simply serve as rituals to set the mind in the right place. Much like the chanting you taught us to accompany our meditations. Yeah, th there's nothing about these rites, rituals, and ceremonies that's going to transform ignorance to wisdom. It's not possible. When you understand what the true problem in the unenlightened mind is, is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, there's nothing about these little ceremonies that are going to transform that. And instead, the mind can be diluted, thinking, okay, I just cheated on my wife. I'm going to go to the temple, have the monk sprinkle some water on me and make everything okay. And then now the mind is diluted. It goes out and cheats on your wife again or goes out and steals or lies. And now let me just go get some water sprinkled on me and get a string tied on my wrist so the mind doesn't have the wisdom and it starts practicing in a way that is diluted or confused or this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. The same thing is if we're pouring out this water, thinking that we're going to transfer our merit to somebody else, particularly dead relatives, then we're not understanding that the generosity that we're producing is to eliminate our craving, desire, attachment, to eliminate our own selfishness. So if we're pouring this water, thinking that now that I made this gift to a teacher or to an ordained practitioner, and this is going to now transfer the benefits that I've accumulated to somebody else, then your mind is still diluted. Your mind is still confused. It's still having misunderstanding. It still has this ignorance and unknowing true reality of why you're actually practicing generosity. So therefore, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment because you're not understanding why you're practicing generosity. So these are very different than the chanting that I teach because the chanting and the way that I teach that, it's all about developing mindfulness and awareness of mind, developing awareness of the breath, 
easing the mind into meditation so that you get the most benefit out of your meditation of training the mind and you're developing and cultivating the qualities of things like mindfulness of concentration of awareness of breath of cultivating the memory these are all aspects of the path that are needed in order to cultivate the mind to enlightenment through training of the mind so there's a way to incorporate chanting into your practice in order to produce the same qualities that you need for enlightenment but the words themselves aren't actually what's producing that there's no mystical magical special things that are happening with the chanting and susan on youtube she asked dear teacher did buddha say all would become enlightened i haven't seen this specifically in the pali canon but i know this to be true in practitioners here in Thailand, we know this to be true, that his goal was to have his teachings reach the entire world and that it was going to be long, long, long after his death that that would actually occur. So I haven't seen those specific words yet in the Pali Canon, but I haven't read every single piece of the Pali Canon as well. But it's really well known throughout the Buddhist world that that's what the Buddha actually taught as part of his teachings. Well, on Zoom, Jeanne writes, Thank you, Teacher David. I would like some advice, please. Some friends and colleagues know that I, as they put it, know something about Buddhism. They sometimes ask me questions I do not feel qualified to answer. For example, I was asked recently what to do when a friend dies. Would you please offer some guidance about what to say once I am asked for advice? Not about the death in particular, but about the advice. Sure. So in those situations, I think what you said is very wise, is that you just share with them that you're not a teacher. You don't fully understand the teachings yet. You are not able or capable to answer their question, but you know somebody who can and then guide them to somebody who you trust that can answer their question for them. That would be the most loving kindness and compassion that you can do in that situation. And then it keeps you in the frame of mind that you're only sharing what you know to be the truth. So you're practicing that fourth precept very closely that you're only sharing what you know to be the truth. And when they ask you a question that you don't know, whether it's about the Buddhist teachings or anything else in the world, there's no harm in saying, I don't know the answer to that, but this person may be able to help you. And this actually really helps with any kind of conceit or arrogance or ego as well to admit to somebody, I don't know the answer to that question. That's very helpful for the mind. Thanks, sir. No more questions. All right. So let's go to the next part of what I was going to share with you, which is the first one here, or the fourth one is part of this chapter is around ordained practitioners. I have ordained practitioners that do learn with me. They typically will watch the playbacks or the replays. They don't necessarily always attend these online classes. Sometimes ordained practitioners here in Thailand will ask me for teachings and I will help them. And one of the things that I share is that ordained practitioners have had this oral tradition for many years within their various communities. And there's various teachings within the ordained communities that differ from what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime. The ordained practitioners practice all different kinds of things related to what they feel is going to actually lead to enlightenment. And it's based on their teacher and who they're actually studying with. 
But one of the things that you will see across pretty much all ordained practitioners, not all of them, but a large majority of them, is that if you lie to an ordained practitioner or you show respect to an ordained practitioner, they will typically not why you back. And I share this with you in case you go to a temple or you're around ordained practitioners, that they're not going to show their respect back to you. And the reason why is because they've been taught that they are practicing a higher number of precepts and a household practitioner is practicing a lower number of precepts. And they've been taught that they're higher in society than anybody else and that they don't have to respect us. And this is vastly different than what the Buddha actually taught. If you look at the words of the Buddha, he talks about the ordained path as being the lowest livelihood. And it is essentially entering into homelessness. And he even says those words that it's the lowest livelihood. Remember, he was a prince. He was destined to become the king. And he steps out of the palace into these rags and walking down the street accepting donations for food when before he had all these servants and people taking care of him. So by stepping out of the palace like that and going into homelessness, this significantly helped any kind of ego that might have been there before his awakening. It helped him to be humble and down to earth. So in the ordained community, those of you that are learning with me that are in the ordained community, if you're not showing gratitude and respect to household practitioners, this is going to allow conceit to exist in the mind. And this is going to hinder you from enlightenment because you need to eliminate any kind of conceit or arrogance or pride. And there's no reason why an ordained practitioner should feel and expect that they should be treated differently just because they chose a certain lifestyle. Instead, what I would suggest is that you have an enormous amount of gratitude, appreciation, and respect for the household practitioners because they're the ones who go out and do all this work and then make these offerings to allow you to have this life where you don't have to work in terms of going out to a career. Your work is to learn, reflect, and practice the teachings and then share them with others so that they can experience enlightenment. And this womb that the household practitioners are providing for us is a way for them to create merit and practice generosity. But our way of giving back to them is to show our appreciation, gratitude, and respect for them making donations to us to be able to share these teachings and be able to focus so much time on our own practice. So for me, when I encounter students, I why and show respect to students in all kinds of different ways. When people make offerings to me, I always find ways to show my gratitude and appreciation because I have an enormous amount of gratitude, appreciation, and respect for all of you that go out into the world. You work and you do all the things that you do to earn your living. And then you carve off some of that and actually share some of your time, effort, energy, and resources with me so that I can work on developing these classes and share these teachings and provide resources and all the different methods that I share in order to share these teachings into the world. And I would suggest that any ordained practitioners do the same, whether you're a bhikkhu or a bikini, male or female ordained practitioner, that you do the same, that you have this gratitude, appreciation, and respect. I'd like to switch to the next slide, Basam, and kind of share some of the words of the Buddha on this topic so that you understand 
how important this is, not just for ordained practitioners, but even for household practitioners, that we don't allow the ego and the arrogance and the conceit to come into the mind and that we work to eliminate this because otherwise it will hinder us from experiencing enlightenment. Here, this titled gain, honor, and praise are obstacles even for an arahant. An arahant is an enlightened being. The words of the Buddha here are monks, Gain, honor, and praise, I say, are an obstacle, even for a monk who is an arahant, one with taints destroyed. When this was said, the venerable Ananda asked the master teacher Gautama, Why, venerable sir, are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle, even for a monk with taints destroyed? I'm going to pause here for a second. Ananda is asking a rightful question here. He's saying, hold on a second. If somebody's enlightened, why is gain, honor, and praise such an obstacle for them? Because if someone's enlightened, they would have already eliminated conceit, arrogance, and pride, this measuring and comparing, this judging of others. Why would that be an obstacle for someone who's already enlightened? Because they would have already eliminated their mind being affected by gain, honor, and praise. So he's following up to the Buddha and saying, you know, why is this a problem? And now the Buddha clarifies for him. He says, I do not say, Ananda, that gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind, but I say they are an obstacle to his attainment of those peaceful dwellings in this very life which are achieved by one who resides diligent, dedicated, and determined. So dreadful, Ananda, are gain, honor, and praise, so bitter, vile, obstructive, to achieving the unsurpassed security from bondage or enlightenment. Therefore, Ananda, you should train yourselves thus. We will abandon the arisen gain, honor, and praise, and we will not let the arisen gain, honor, and praise persist obsessing our mind. Thus should you train yourself. So what he's saying is that once someone's enlightened, the gain, honor, and praise is not an obstacle for them because they've already overcome that obstacle. They've already eliminated conceit and arrogance and pride. But what he's saying is if we allow gain, honor, and praise, this thinking that we are so special to obsess the mind, then this is going to be obstructive and hinder you from actually attaining enlightenment. So you should always try to cultivate the mindset of, I am nothing, I'm a nobody. Not in a degrading way, but just don't try to prop yourself up thinking that you're so special. And this can occur in the household life. It can also occur in the ordained lifestyle as well. That somebody and many people, as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, are going to be sharing with you how wise you are, how friendly you are, how peaceful you are, how respectful you are. They're just going to have nothing but admiration for the way that you conduct yourself in the world. And people are going to be laying on all these comments. You can't go out and train the world to speak to you in the way of your choosing. But you can control your mind that when you hear these positive things that people are sharing with you, don't allow it to obsess your mind. Don't allow this pleasant feelings to arise in the mind just because somebody's telling you how much of a wonderful person you are. Because if you allow those pleasant feelings to arise when someone's telling you how wonderful of a person you are, then your mind's going to crave that 
And then when you don't hear that, you're going to feel diminished. Or if somebody says something negative to you, you're going to experience painful feelings as a result of that. So you've got to let go and eliminate any kind of pleasant feelings that might arise in the mind when someone lays on this admiration or this respect and this gratitude that they might have for you. You might thank them. You might tell them they're so kind. You might say other things to them, sharing your appreciation for their kind words. But you can share that as words without allowing it to obsess your mind. So when you feel and observe this arising of pleasant feelings or this arising of conceits or arrogance in the mind, you've got to cut that off and let that go, residing in this unshakable liberation where the mind isn't affected either positively by praise or negatively if somebody's talking negatively to you. And then another thing that I'll share on the next page, Basam, is some more words of the Buddha where he talks about this spiritual life. This is really helpful for ordained practitioners who may think that they're above and higher than others, but it's also really good for us household practitioners too. This is titled, This Spiritual Life is Not Live for the Sake of Deceiving People. Monks, this spiritual life is not live for the sake of deceiving people and persuading them nor for the benefit of gain, honor, and praise, nor for the benefit of winning in debates, nor with the thought, let the people know me thus. But rather, this spiritual life is lived for the sake of restraint, abandoning, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination. So this is the Buddha making it very clear what this path to enlightenment is all about. What this path to enlightenment is about is restraining the mind, pulling it back from the objects of its affection, no longer allowing it to have craving, desire, attachment, abandoning these unwholesome aspects of our life like killing and stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, taking substances that cause heedlessness, practicing these good wholesome teachings that's the complete eightfold path that leads to the freedom from strong feelings, that you don't have this anger and sadness and frustration and irritation and annoyance and guilt and shame and fear. Instead, you're working to eliminate this discontentedness. So this spiritual life is lived for the sake of restraint, abandoning, freedom from strong feelings, and the elimination of discontentedness. But you may encounter, or you yourself, may experience this interest to persuade people and push people to do things your way. You may be looking for certain gain, honor, and praise from others. Like, look at me. I'm so wholesome. I'm so great. I'm on this path to enlightenment. You know, admire me for all my accomplishments. You know, I'm in the jhanas or I'm in the first stage of enlightenment. Look at me. You know, lay on this gain, honor, and praise. This is craving, desire, attachment. Or, for winning in debates. Some people actually debate the Buddhist teachings and they try to discern who is right and who is wrong and there's these fierce arguments. If you spend any time in Facebook groups, you might see people arguing about the teachings of what's right or wrong. And the Buddha's like, hey, this path isn't about that. It's not about debating. It's not about winning in debates and proving how smart and intelligent you are. Or the Buddha says, with the thought let the people know me thus. This is like being boastful, pushing out the chest and showing people how smart and wise and intelligent you are. 
That's not what this path is about. Instead, as the mind becomes more and more wise, you have to take active steps to practice being more and more humble because people are going to want to prop you up and put you up high in in order for you to get to enlightenment you have to be down to earth and be very humble so don't allow other people's intention speech and actions to arise this conceits or this arrogance or pride in the mind because it's only going to hinder you from experiencing enlightenment so now let's go back to the slide where I also had number five and six here. And then we'll move into any questions that you guys have. So with number four, you understand here that with ordained practitioners, it's really important that you guys look at your teachings and what's being shared with you because 2,500 years worth of impermanence, if you're not basing your practice on the words of the Buddha and you're not cultivating your practice, then you're not really living up to what the Buddha set out as a path for you, which is to learn, reflect, and practice to benefit from the mutual support of household practitioners supporting you. But then as you build up your practice to offer this back to the household practitioners as your appreciation and gratitude and respect for the fact that they're providing you the life of being able to live and work your practice rather than go out and work in a career, have a house, buy clothes, have a car and all these other things. Instead, you're focused on your practice and the way that you show that gratitude and respect back to the household practitioners is you share teachings with them. That's the gamma that comes back and forth. Number five is about chanting and mantras. You'll see people that think that if you chant a certain chant that you'll get an extra long life or it'll eliminate gamma or it will create some special thing, maybe even help you get to enlightenment. It'll actually produce enlightenment. There's people that think if you chant the same words repetitively over and over and over again, that it'll ultimately produce enlightenment. This is not part of the Buddhist teachings at all. The chanting that the Buddha taught, it was done in order to remember the teachings. He spoke orally. That's how he shared the teachings. And then twice a month, every two weeks, the ordained practitioners would come together and they would recite his teachings word for word for word. They would recite the discourses as a way of remembering the teachings and retaining them for longer and longer periods of time because they didn't write things down. Nowadays, we chant these same words from the Pali text. And because people don't necessarily know 100% what those words are, because they're in a language that is no longer a spoken language now, people have kind of adopted this mindset of, oh, they must be really special. They must be really mystical and magical. This is the reason why we don't understand them. And if we just chant them, that they're going to produce this extra long life for us. Well, if this is true, you could go into those communities where people are chanting these chants and there should be a bunch of people who are 150 years old or 200 years old or 300 years old sitting around because if they're chanting these chants and it produces an extra long life, then you should see like 200 and 300 year old people sitting around. And if you don't see those people sitting around, then you know that these people are misunderstanding what it is that they're doing. And I would say that there's nowhere on the face of this earth where there's a large community of people where there's two and 300 year old people. And this isn't because people are doing anything malicious. They really truly believe what they're doing, but they're not looking at the truth. 
that, okay, if what we're chanting is leading to an extra long life, then there should be two or 300 year old people around. They don't think about it to that level of detail. They just kind of do what other people's taught them to do, which is this chanting and these mantras. And the Buddha didn't teach this as a way to create an extra long life or eliminate unwholesome gamma or even get to enlightenment. The chanting that I do is as I share in those classes is to ease the mind into meditation and to actually get more benefit out of the meditation and then ease the mind out of meditation. Practicing awareness of mind, concentration, awareness of breath, and helping you to cultivate a better memory. But aside from that, that's all that's happening here. But you could do that with chanting. You could do that with any number of things. You can produce those same qualities of mindfulness, concentration, of focus, awareness of breath, and deep memory through other things. There is no aspect of this path that requires chanting or mantras. We know that the Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. There's eight steps, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. There's nowhere as part of this path that the Buddha says, right chanting or right mantras, because it's not part of the path. But because we do have this tradition around today and we do it as a way of honoring and respecting the Buddha, it can be done in a way that does produce the qualities of mind that are needed to attain enlightenment, but you need to have that wisdom to be able to do that. If you falsely, mistakenly believe that these words have special powers or they're somehow protecting you, then you're misunderstanding right view, that the only way to protect the mind is through training the mind. The way that you protect the mind is you eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance through training the mind through the Eightfold Path. You can't say a chant to protect you because if you say a chant and you go outside and you speak harsh with people, then people are going to want to beat you up. You can't say a chant and then go outside and lie and steal and your life's going to be wonderful. You can't say a chant and go outside and use substances that cause heedlessness and then your life's going to be wonderful. It doesn't work this way. So these chants are actually causing some people who are misunderstanding what's happening to be diluted and continue to experience this unknowing of true reality and this ignorance. So if you're going to chant, be sure you understand how to chant in terms of producing qualities of mind that are beneficial for enlightenment, but also at the same time realize that you don't have to chant, that it's not required, that people who attain enlightenment, some people who are enlightened, they don't chant at all and it's not part of the path to enlightenment, but it can be incorporated into your life practice if you choose. Just like prayer and yoga and exercise are not part of the path to enlightenment, but if you exercised, it would produce a healthier body. Or if you did yoga, it would help you produce a healthier body, which is gonna take some of the burden off of the mind, but not everybody who gets to enlightenment is going to need to do yoga, for example, or not everyone who gets to enlightenment is going to need to exercise, for example. But everybody who gets to enlightenment is going to need to practice right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. That's what it's going to take. So understand chanting and how it's been misunderstood over the years and understand what the Buddha 
did teach about this. And what he did is he used it as a way to help people remember the teachings, not as a way to produce any particular qualities of mind for enlightenment, or else he would have made it part of the Eightfold Path. And then the last one on this particular slide is Buddha statues. If you've seen statues of Gautama Buddha, they really are very different from culture to culture. If you see a statue from China, it looks very Chinese. If you see one from Japan, it looks very Japanese. The statues here in Thailand have a certain appearance of maybe looking like Thai, for some people might say that. And this is actually craving desire attachment, where the mind's wanting Gautama Buddha to be from that culture. So they cast statues based on the way they feel that the Buddha looked, and they use the facial features and characteristics based on those individual cultures. But in reality, the Buddha was from this region of the world that today we call Nepal in Northeast India. And he looked just like every other human being from that area. There isn't any other physical features that distinguishes a Buddha that makes them look different than any other human being. So this picture that I'm sharing here, this is a representation of what artists feel that the Buddha looked like based on descriptions that are in the original source text of the Pali Canon. The artist that drew this and painted this is from Thailand, but you can see that the artwork looks very much like someone from Nepal or Northeast India of what we know those people look like today. And you can see that he just has short hair with a shaved head. He has ears and a nose and an eyes and mouth and all the same things that we have. He's just a human being. And when people started making statues of the Buddha, this is where they started getting into worshiping of these statues. Immediately after the death of the Buddha, people had the teachings of the Buddha really fresh in their minds because he had just lived and he taught for 45 years. During his lifetime, there were no statues of him because he was alive and he was there. But it was about two or 300 years after his death that the people who were practicing the Buddhist teachings came in contact with the Greek people and the pe people in Greece who were making statues of their gods. And these people looked around and they were like, hey, well, what do we have to make a statue out of? And they were practicing the Buddhist teachings. So they ended up making statues of the Buddha based on the criteria and the techniques that existed in Greece at the time. So a lot of the very early statues of the Buddha look very much inspired by Greek artists because that's where people were learning in the Buddhist communities. They were learning from people that were from Greece, and then they were able to then kind of bring those skills of statue making into their communities. And nowadays, the challenge is, is that there's people that will pray to these statues. There's people who think the spirit of the Buddha is in these statues. There's people who worship these statues. There's people who feed these statues with water and food and different things like this. And there's people who get really angry around statues if you don't respect it in the proper way. And this is their craving, desire, attachment. That's why they're getting angry about this. But you can rest assured that any statue that you see, all it is is either metal or plastic or epoxy or something like this. It's not actually the Buddha. His spirit is not in those statues. You can't pray to these statues. You can't worship these statues. You can't feed these statues and actually get some type of benefit that's going to eliminate the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. 
and produce enlightenment. So the same thing is if you went to these statues multiple times and you prayed to them and nothing happens, then you know that it's not the truth. And once again, the reason why I share these things with you is because these are all things that I, at one time in my life, actually believed. At one time, I had an enormous collection of statues of the Buddha, very beautiful images, amazing artwork. And I fed these statues. I gave them water. I gave them food. I sprinkled water on them. I gave them a bath every year. I did all these different things. But the mind wasn't eliminating discontentedness. And that's how I know for myself that this isn't the truth. And when you look at the Buddhist teachings, there's nowhere in his teachings where he talks about making statues of him, praying to him, worshiping him, or doing any kind of things like this that I just described that you'll see in a lot of Buddhist communities today. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. So I'm wondering about the difference between mantras and suttas or sutras. Are these are a, a English words or Pali words? It depends what tradition you're in. If you're in the Theravada tradition and somebody's chanting, it's going to most likely be in the Pali language. If you're in other traditions like Mayana tradition or Vajrayana tradition, they will typically chant or say mantras in their own local language. So in Vietnamese, they might say it in Vietnamese or in China, they might say it in Chinese or uh, whatever language these various countries have, they will oftentimes do mantras in those languages. The sutras are the discourses of the Buddha. So when the Buddha shared, like I shared just recently about gain, honor, and praise. These are the sutras. These are the words of the Buddha. This is the Buddha teaching very clearly, saying, monks, gain, honor, and praise is so dreadful, bitter, and vile. It's obstructive, right? He's explaining the wisdom to help you understand about conceit and the ego and to eliminate that. Chanting and mantras are just kind of some words that have been put together. And a lot of times they're to honor and respect the Buddha. He didn't teach that. He didn't teach to chant to him as a way to honor and respect him. In fact, he shared that if somebody was interested in respecting him, that what they should do is learn and practice his teachings. He didn't require people to go around and chant to him and bow down to him and give him all this admiration and gratitude and all these things. People did do those things because as he shared his teachings, then people could observe for themselves that the condition of their mind was improving. So people talked to him very politely and very respectfully. People did bow down to him. People did do a lot of these things that we would consider very respectful and have a lot of gratitude and appreciation, but he didn't teach them to do those things. People did that on their own. So today, people are doing those things thinking that that's what it takes to get to enlightenment. And that's where the real problem comes in for those people. Well, on Zoom, Chris writes, is there a difference between chanting in the original languages versus chanting in English or whatever one's primary language is? The words themselves have no difference whatsoever. If you do chanting the way that I teach and you haven't been in the classes where I teach chanting, but there is a playlist on YouTube that has five videos where it's recorded of me teaching what chanting is and how I do it and why I do it and all these different things. If you go and 
learn with that or you learn it as part of the restart of the group learning program, which we'll get to chanting in about two and a half months from now. But if you would like to learn before that, you can go use the YouTube playlist that the words themselves don't have any inherent special, mystical, magical powers. So if you chant it in Pali or you chant it in English, it would be the same thing if you're cultivating and using chanting to cultivate things like mindfulness, concentration, memory, and easing the mind into meditation. So there's not going to be any inherent difference between English versus Pali. Some people share a story that the uh, Gautama Buddha, in one of his uh, previous human existences, he fixed, uh, I think, a finger of a statue, and this led him to be a Buddha in his last uh, human existence. Is this true? He doesn't say that in his teachings. He talks about what led to his enlightenment as a Buddha in his last life. And he even talks about things that he did in his previous lives that helped to lead to him becoming a Buddha in his last life. But it's all around things that I've taught as part of this program, like generosity and loving kindness and, you know, these kind of things. It isn't about fixing a statue or things like this that would lead to improvement to the condition of the mind. Because in order for those things to take effect, we would need to have a supreme being or some entity or some force to kind of zap you and say, okay, you fixed that statue. Let me zap you and give you enlightenment. But that's would be wrong view if we thought that that's the way that it actually happens. It doesn't happen that way. Thanks, sir. Marcy has your hand raised. Let's go to here. Thank you, teacher David. Um, so my question is, is I have, um, and I don't do it all the time because I don't want to create like this dependency on it, but I will find myself when I don't feel like I'm practicing, um, the eightfold path and, you know, to, to a full extent as I could, I find myself, I'll go through and I recite to myself the three universal truths of impermanence, discontentment, non-self. Um, and then I go down through the laws of karma and I define them for myself, like I'm defining them. And then I go through the eightfold path and the four noble truths, well, the four noble truths and the eightfold path. But I don't do it all the time, but I do do it when I feel like I am kind of straying from uh, practicing. But I also don't also want to do something that I think is going to create, um, you know, a negative karma or that I'm starting to maybe develop, you know, some kind of right or ritual type of thing. It sounds to me what you're doing is helping the teachings to soak into the mind more. And that's very helpful because if you're out in life and you're practicing and you realize you kind of slip up <clears throat> and you have a misstep and you're like, all right, well, let me refresh myself. Let me refresh the mind on what these teachings are and how by doing that, then I'll be able to practice them better. And for those of you guys that are in Facebook, I just recently published a poster where you can print out this poster and that poster has kind of got the capsulated the summary of the Buddhist teachings. And that's what that poster is designed for, that if you're having challenges in your daily practice, it's great to open up the book and go to a place in the book and really see the real details of what I share or go to a video or a podcast or something like that. But sometimes you just need a real short reference or a quick reference. And that's what that poster is for. So on that poster has all different kind of things. One of the things they have is something like the five factors of well-spoken speech. So if you're having challenges in your speech and you just came out of a conversation in your daily life and you're like, 
I feel like I didn't practice those very well. Let me go check. And then you go check and you can just see right there on the poster really easily what are the five factors of well-spoken speech. And this can build your confidence. This can help you confirm that you were actually practicing well. And then you can maybe see areas where you weren't practicing well. And that will help to soak in the teachings and kind of support, encourage, and motivate your practice more so that now in that next conversation, you can be that much better. So that's what the Buddha taught is to learn the teachings and allow them to soak into the mind and then practice them. A right ritual ceremony or worship would be kind of thinking something superstitious or auspicious is going to happen, that if I read this poster 10 times every day, that that's all that it takes for me to actually get to enlightenment is just to read these poster or remind myself of these teachings. But the thing is, is that what you're doing, it sounds like, is you're soaking these teachings into the mind so that you can then go out into the world and practice them. That's what actually produces the results, not any kind of auspicious or superstitious type things. Well, let's go to Nick. Thank you, Basim. Teacher David, Manal on Facebook asks, if someone had the choice to be ordained and work hard towards the attainment of enlightenment through that path, or to remain as a household practitioner and continue their practice towards attaining enlightenment this way, what would be the motivation to ordain in one's life? Everybody's a little bit different. The way that I view ordination is I view it as a path that is more conducive to enlightenment because it's like being in a, in a mother's womb, that a mother's womb is conducive to the development of a fetus. And when you're in the womb of the community in terms of ordaining, you're not having a career, you don't have a car, you don't have a house, you don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend. Even if you've had kids prior, you no longer associate with the kids in the same way. You're not raising them daily, you're not going through those daily struggles. Instead, you're completely involved in just learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings for your own enlightenment, and that's it. You don't have the responsibility to go talk to a boss or a life partner or any of these other things. You're just solely focused on the development of your own life. Your life is structured in such a way that you're just accepting food off of the street. You're not choosing food. You're just accepting donations. You're living very humbly, very basic life. So in that respect, it can be more conducive to attaining enlightenment. But also some people can go into that life and have a lot of harshness and experience a lot of difficulties. If they haven't done the work prior, they might actually miss their previous life. They might actually miss their children, miss their household life, and that can be a real hindrance for them and being away from them for that type of lifestyle. They might feel like they abandoned their children, for example. So for some people, ordination is the way to go and it's more conducive for them, but it also comes with its own challenges as well. And the same thing with living in a household life. There's certain benefits that come with that, but there's also certain challenges with being in a household life as well. There's benefits in terms of you get to essentially decide for yourself every single moment what it is that you're going to do and how you're going to do it. You're not living by the guidelines of a temple or a master teacher in the temple, so, so to speak. You're not confined in terms of income and what you can and can't make in terms of money. But what's going on in the household life is you have lots of tasks. There's lots of things that you're doing on a daily basis. 
And you've got to organize your life and have a lot of inner discipline because you've got to make sure that you have time to learn and practice the teachings. Because in an ordained lifestyle, you're surrounded by a community of people who are deeply dedicated to learning and practicing. So you kind of have built-in support. You have built-in encouragement, built-in motivation. And there's kind of a schedule at the temple where Every morning there's chanting and meditation. Every evening there's chanting and meditation. There's a certain schedule that you go through and your life is structured for you. And there's a certain discipline that is provided there. Where at home you don't have that discipline, you've got to create that discipline for yourself. So there's pros and cons to both of these. And going through and attaining enlightenment in a household life, I would share requires a whole lot of work and effort even beyond that of what an ordained practitioner is going to experience. Now, that's not to diminish and say that it's not challenging to attain enlightenment as an ordained practitioner, because I'm sure it is. But in order to attain enlightenment in the household life, you have to overcome so many obstacles in your life to be able to actually accomplish that and do that. And having done that, if you attain enlightenment in the household life, you're going to have cultivated a significant amount of wisdom to be able to overcome all the obstacles in the household life to actually attain enlightenment. And then once you do, if you attain enlightenment in the household life, you're going to have an enormous amount of freedom because you're not bound by the strict discipline of a temple environment. But also, if you attain enlightenment in the ordained lifestyle, you can also unordain and go back to household life as well. But it might be a bit challenging for you at that point after having learned and practiced as an ordained practitioner. So there's multiple pros and cons about both different lifestyles. And if somebody was very much interested in considering either of these two lifestyles, we could have a conversation where I can more directly kind of articulate, you know, these are the pros of the household lifestyle. These are the challenges. These are the pros and the benefits of ordained lifestyle. These are the challenges. And then you could look at it yourself and decide, you know, what would you like to do as part of that? Because there's, like I said, benefits and challenges to both sides. And it's important that you look at those and you wisely decide, you know, which direction would you like to walk? And then understand that whatever direction you do walk, it's not a permanent decision that you can decide at any point in your life to ordain. You can decide at any point in your life to unordain as well. There's no requirement for you to keep a permanent decision because people in the Buddhist path, they understand impermanence and there's not an expectation that you make a decision today that's going to be held on to permanently because we understand that that actually is what causes one to experience discontentedness. So the ordained path is there for people as a mother's womb, and it can be beneficial for anybody who would choose to walk that path. But there's lots of things to consider in doing that. And then there's lots of things to consider about the household life as well. Also on Facebook, Joseph asks, should a practitioner have a statue of the Buddha not to worship, but to give honor because of his teachings? This is something that people can choose to do if they like. And even going back to that tying the string, I think, Nick, you were the one who asked this question about tying the string on the wrist. Like some people might choose to have a monk tie a string on their wrist because maybe they had a really good talk with the ordained practitioner, with their teacher. And it was maybe like an hour or two hour talk. They learned a lot and tying the string on the wrist. Maybe it's a reminder for them 
of the actual teachings that they learned in that discussion. Same thing like a statue of the Buddha. It's not that you're wrong or you're bad or you're going to hinder yourself from attaining enlightenment if you just have this statue of a Buddha. But it's important that you understand what this statue is, that it's not the Buddha himself. The spirit of the Buddha is not in there. You're not worshiping the Buddha to produce any results. You're not feeding these statues, cleaning these statues as a way to produce any particular wisdom. But instead, somebody might actually have these statues as a way to remind them that when they see this statue in their living room or in their room, maybe they have a certain room that they do meditation in or something like that. And this is like a daily reminder of practicing things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and so forth and so on, because that's the actual path. That's what leads to enlightenment, not the actual statue itself. So if somebody chooses to have a statue, so be it. You know, that's their choice. But just be sure that you have the wisdom to understand that there's nothing in the statue itself that's going to produce any beneficial results. But if you use it as a reminder to practice the teachings on a regular ongoing basis, then that could potentially help you if that's what you need. Thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. Well, thanks, sir. No more questions for now. Okay, so let's go forward to the last three for today's class. Number seven is in some communities, you might see them refer to the Buddha as a god, an avatar, or a lord. It's important to understand that the Buddha never referred to himself this way, that he never said he was a god, he never said he was an avatar, he never said that he was a lord. And when we look at the meaning and understanding of what these words mean, then we can understand that the Buddha was actually exactly the opposite of these things. But when you look at his teachings, there's people that will translate his teachings as Lord Buddha, or you'll see the blessed one, which is the next item that we're going to be talking about. But the Buddha didn't refer to himself that way. These are people who are translating the words of the Buddha today and using those words Lord or blessed one, probably because of their conditioning and their experiences at earlier times in their life, they might have been in a Christian or Muslim background and maybe they're now moving into Buddhism. And now when they start translating, because they call it the Lord Jesus Christ, they might actually start translating the Buddhist teachings as the Lord Buddha. Or they might think of blessing, receiving blessings and these other traditions. And now when they move into Buddhist tradition and they start translating some of these texts, they start using words that they know from other parts of their life that their mind's holding on to because they themselves may not be enlightened yet and their mind is still holding on to some of these things from the past. Well, when we look at the definition of what a Lord is, a Lord is someone or something having power, authority, or influence, like a master or ruler. Or another way to look at the definition of Lord is it's an act of superiority, demeaning manner towards someone. This is the verb versus the noun. Well, when you look at what the Buddha did, he actually was just the opposite of this. He didn't claim to have any particular authority. He didn't claim to be a ruler. He stepped down from being a ruler. He wasn't interested in that. He wasn't looking to have this superiority complex. He wasn't looking in to be domineering to other people. Instead, he was practicing to be humble and peaceful and down to earth, just an average human being. But he knew that he had wisdom beyond that which other people had, and he made himself available for 45 years in order to share that wisdom with others. 
But it's after his death that people have admired him so much for the teachings that he shared that people stray away from the actual words of the Buddha and they start referring to him as a god or an avatar or a lord, even though he never said this himself. So as you refer to Gautama Buddha, you might call him Gautama Buddha, you might call him the Buddha, you might call him aesthetic Gautama, which is what they used during his lifetime. A lot of people called him aesthetic Gautama, which is essentially monk Gautama. He referred to himself as Tathagata, which is what we're going to talk about in number nine. Tathagata is one who has discerned the truth or one who has discovered the truth. So he referred to himself as the Tathagata, the one who's discovered the truth. He never referred to himself as a Lord, and I would suggest that we shouldn't refer to him as a Lord either, because he never referred to himself that way. And if we refer to him as Lord Buddha, then all the people, billions of people who have been taught that Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior, when they hear us refer to the Buddha as Lord Buddha, then they're not going to be interested in learning and practicing these teachings because they've been taught to not worship any other Lord and Savior except for Jesus Christ. So right away, they're going to push the Buddhist teachings away. But by us referring to the Buddha in the way that he referred to himself, which is the Tathagata or Aesthetic Gautama or a teacher, or the way that I refer to him, the way that a lot of people during his lifetime did, is Master Teacher Gautama. Right. This is the way that we refer to him during his lifetime is master teacher Gautama. So he was just a teacher. He wasn't a Lord or a God or any of these other things. And if we adopt this wrong view, if we adopt this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, then it's going to hinder other people from being able to come into our community and be able to learn these teachings. Because as soon as they see us referring to the Buddha as a Lord, they're going to say, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. That's not what I'm interested in because they've been taught otherwise. So if we use appropriate terminology to refer to him, then we can remain open to all beings. We can have open arms to accept anybody into our community who would like to come into our community and learn because the teachings of the Buddha and people like Jesus Christ and Prophet Muhammad, there's a lot of similarities among them. And if we view the Buddha as a human being, someone who declared this path to enlightenment and awoken to enlightenment as a human being and as a teacher, then people that are even part of other traditions can then approach the Buddhist teachings in a sincere way and actually learn and practice to experience the results. Likewise, if we understand the way that people refer to blessings, that You'll sometimes hear in Buddhist communities, they will say, you know, may the Buddha bless you. Or they'll say, may the triple gem bless you. Or things like this. And when you look at the word blessing of what this means, is it means God's favor and protection. A prayer asking for God's favor and protection. The Buddha never taught this as part of his teaching. So he never taught that he would bless people. But because people have seen this terminology in other traditions, and now they're moving into this tradition, or they may have friends that are in these other traditions, and they hear people say, may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you, or may God bless you. And they hear these things in other traditions, so then they start appropriating those terms into our tradition. The same way that people interacted with people in Greece and started adopting their traditions of making statues, 
people today are using wording and word choice and phrases that they're hearing in other traditions and they're appropriating them into the Buddhist tradition. And they're using words like, may the Buddha bless you, or may the triple gem bless you. These are not things that the Buddha taught. There's no way for the Buddha to bless you. He lived, he died, and during that time that he lived, he shared these teachings, and he left the teachings as a way to help us. And by learning and practicing his teachings, that's what's going to benefit us. There's no way for him or anyone else to actually bless us and actually experience an improved condition of mind or an improved life. There's no way for that to occur. We can't bless other people. Other people can't bless us. We can have fond thoughts of others. We can have loving kindness and compassion for others. And our intention, speech, and actions can be wholesome and loving and kind and respectful towards others. This is what creates a more peaceful world and a more peaceful environment for all of us to exist in. But I can't put my hand on somebody and bless them and have something positive happen for them. They might feel my warmth of my hug or my handshake or my touch on their shoulder, and they can feel my love and my support and my encouragement, and they might arise in their own mind those same qualities and they might feel the love and kindness coming from me and then they might arise that love and kindness in their own mind but it's arising the love and kindness and their compassion through their intention speech and actions that's ultimately going to produce better results for them in their life so it's important that we understand that this is not part of the buddhist teachings as well because it would just allow us to reside in continued ignorance and unknowing of true reality if we use phrases like lord buddha may the lord buddha bless you may the triple gem bless you things like this it's showing that the mind has not yet fully understood the wisdom of the buddha and then this last one you'll hear some people that refer to attaining enlightenment as you are going to become a buddha when you attain enlightenment or that you have attained Buddhahood when you attain enlightenment. Or they might say that you have Buddha nature. This is a big, gross misunderstanding of the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha never taught that enlightened beings are a Buddha. He never taught that everybody has Buddha nature. He never taught that when you attain enlightenment, that you have attained Buddhahood. He taught that you can attain the fourth stage of enlightenment as an arahant, and at that point you would be enlightened, but he never taught that you would be a Buddha. A Buddha is someone who's attained enlightenment through their own independent journey. They didn't have any teachers. They didn't have any guides. They progressed to enlightenment to eliminate the ten fetters on their own without the assistance of any other beings around them. They didn't have any teachers guide them on this path. And then once they awakened through this independent journey, they then spend the rest of their life sharing those teachings for other beings to experience that same mental state, getting to enlightenment. And there'll be countless people that attain enlightenment during the lifetime of a Buddha. And then the third criteria is that they will leave their teachings in such a condition that after their death, countless more beings will be able to attain enlightenment after their death. So one is they attain enlightenment through their own independent journey. Two, they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing the teachings and countless beings will attain enlightenment throughout their lifetime. And then the third one is 
upon the death of a person who is an actual Buddha, countless more people will actually attain enlightenment after their death. This term Buddha didn't really get applied to who we call Gautama Buddha until after his death because it requires those three criteria to actually be considered a Buddha. And we don't see that third criteria until actually someone dies. You can see the criteria of independent journey, dedication of their life, and countless people are getting to enlightenment. And people kind of know this person is a Buddha. But then the vast majority of the world doesn't know that this person's a Buddha until they die and meet that third criteria. So Gautama Buddha himself didn't refer to himself as a Buddha during his lifetime. He would refer to himself as a aesthetic Gautama, as monk Gautama. Most often he would refer to himself as the Tathagata, the one who discovered the truth, or the one who discerns the truth, or the one who shares the truth, or the one who exposes the truth. He used this term Tathagata, and in his teachings he makes it very clear of what a Buddha is and what a Buddha isn't. And he talks about how a Tathagata liberates their mind versus how every other practitioner liberates their mind. He talks about the differences between a Buddha and a enlightened being. And there's even places in his teachings where he talks about how rare an actual Buddha is. And Basim, if you switch to the next page, you can see the words of the Buddha where he talks about how rare an actual Buddha is. This is part of what is titled the rare appearances of the five treasures. These are the five treasures that the Buddha says is very, very rare in the world. Now keep in mind that the Buddha shared that his teachings are going to help all of humanity to get to enlightenment. So if everybody gets to enlightenment and everybody's a Buddha, then that would be something that's very common and happens all the time. But here you can see in the words of the Buddha that he doesn't share it that way. Instead, he shares this. I can't pronounce this person's name, but he's sharing with this person. The appearance of five treasures is rare in the world. What five? One, the appearance of a Tathagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, is rare in the world. Well, if the Buddha had countless enlightened beings around him at the time of his life, and he considered all of them to be Buddhas, and all of them had Buddhahood, and they all had Buddha nature, then why would he have said that it's very rare for a perfectly enlightened Buddha to arise in the world? And this is just one place in his teachings where he says this. He says this in other parts of his teachings as well. He talks about how rare it is for a Tathagata, for a perfectly enlightened one, to arise in the world. This is just one place. And then you can see some of the other things that he says that are very rare as part of existence in the world. Not only the arising of a Tathagata, a perfectly enlightened one, but the second one is a person who can teach the teachings and discipline proclaimed by a Tathagata is rare in the world. It's very rare for someone to be able to learn and practice and then be able to share those teachings in the world, those teachings that are shared by a Buddha, by a Tathagata. The third one is when the teachings and discipline proclaimed by a Tathagata has been taught, a person who can understand it is rare in the world because it takes a lot of time, effort, energy, and resources for someone to wrap their mind around the teachings and really truly understand them.
Number four, when the teachings and discipline proclaimed by a Tathagata has been taught, a person who can understand it and practice it according with the teachings is rare in the world. So not only someone who can teach it, not only someone who can understand it, but someone to actually practice it as the way that it's supposed to be practiced is very rare in the world. And then the fifth thing that is rare in the world, the Buddha says, is a grateful and thankful person is rare in the world. So these are things that the Buddha says are five treasures. It's very rare for these things to occur. And what I've shared so far relates to what we've been talking about as number nine, that you can attain enlightenment, but you won't be a Buddha. You don't have Buddhahood. You haven't attained Buddhahood. You don't have Buddha nature. It's a very unique individual who arises and actually has the capability to arise in the world as a Tathagata or as a Buddha and accomplish all the things that a Buddha accomplishes during their lifetime. If we thought that every single person was a Buddha, in my opinion, this is from arrogance. This is the ego thinking that everybody's a Buddha. And this is also to disrespect the Buddha for what he actually did during his lifetime. To go through six years and actually attain enlightenment on your own is quite an amazing feat. You guys are all learning and practicing these teachings with the guidance of a teacher and the guidance of a community and all these resources to be able to help you. And you see how challenging it is. If you can imagine doing this all by yourself without the help of anyone else, it's a tremendous feat to be able to actually attain enlightenment on your own without the help of anyone else. And then once you arise to dedicate the rest of your life to sharing these teachings with others and leave the teachings in such a condition that they can help countless people to attain enlightenment after your death, this takes an enormous amount of time, effort, energy, and resources. It also takes an enormous amount of loving kindness and compassion to be able to do that. Gautama Buddha set this in motion over 2,500 years ago, and here we are still talking about his teachings today. So he did an enormous amount of work during his lifetime to get to the point where today we're actually able to learn and practice his teachings, and they produce the enlightened mind. So if, if you were to call yourself a Buddha during your lifetime, this would be to disrespect and denigrate the accomplishments of an actual real true Buddha. And it would require a certain amount of ego and arrogance and pride and boastfulness to be able to do that. So it's important that you understand that you're 100% capable of attaining enlightenment in this lifetime. But in terms of what you might consider yourself to be as you attain enlightenment is you wouldn't be a Buddha. In fact, you probably wouldn't label yourself as anything because by the time you get to enlightenment, there is no self. So you wouldn't consider yourself to be any one thing or another. You would just know that you're a human being who used to have all this pollution in your mind. And now through this path, you've eradicated all this pollution. And now you're experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And having experienced all the discontentedness that you've experienced in this life and prior lives, learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings to get to that enlightened mental state where now the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, you will probably have such an enormous amount of respect and gratitude for this man that 
if you ever saw him in the real flesh, you would probably just be so grateful and have so much admiration for what he did over 2,500 years ago during the course of his life, and then also in his prior lives as well, in order to get to the point that he actually attained enlightenment in his last life. So you know what it feels like to experience anger and sadness and frustration and grief and guilt and shame and fear and boredom and loneliness and shyness and all these other discontent feelings. You know what that feels like and how debilitating that can be sometimes, all the anxiety and all the stress. Well, when you move to this enlightened mental state where all that's gone, you will have nothing but admiration and respect for Gautama Buddha. And I'm quite sure that you wouldn't be interested in referring to yourself as a Buddha because you'll know that a real true Buddha is someone who meets those three criteria. An independent journey to enlightenment without the help of any teachers. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing these teachings into the world, accomplishing a countless number of enlightened beings during their lifetime. And then they leave the teachings in such a condition that countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death. And that's what a true Buddha does. And an enlightened being isn't going to have the ability to do that. A Buddha is enlightened, but they're a unique type of enlightened being that was able to do it on their own and accomplish all these other things. Where an enlightened being will accomplish many things in their life, but it won't amount to what someone like Gautama Buddha accomplished. So this is everything that I had to share with you guys today. And I'll just kind of turn things over to all of you for any questions that you have about these three that I just talked about or any of the others that we've talked about today. And you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically to ask any questions. Well, with all that said about what a, a, a true Buddha, an actual Buddha, has done only out of compassion and loving for all uh, uh, beings who are interested to attain enlightenment, what would be uh, the best way to honor a Buddha or show appreciation for uh, a Buddha? So a Buddha isn't looking for anybody to honor them because they don't have a craving. They don't have a desire. They don't have even a need for people to honor them necessarily because the conceit, the ego, the arrogance, the pride has already been eliminated in order to get to enlightenment. All a Buddha is interested in is out of loving kindness and compassion for the world is sharing teachings with humanity so that others can experience the same mental state that they're experiencing, that they discovered on their own. And they know that they're a Buddha because they did it on their own and they know that only a Buddha would be able to do that. But when you look at the Buddha's teachings about what he suggests for somebody, if they're interested to respect him, is he says the best way for someone to respect him is to learn and practice his teachings. But he's not requiring people to do that, but instead just saying, okay, if you would like to show appreciation, using your word, Bassam, if you would like to show appreciation and gratitude or respect, is to learn and practice the teachings. And that's the way you would do it because the goals of a Buddha are to share their teachings as far and wide as possible so that during their lifetime as many people can experience enlightenment as possible because that's going to ensure the sustainability of their teachings after their death and long, long beyond. So during their lifetime, they're going to take efforts to share their teachings as far and wide as possible. 
without craving, without desire. They're just going to gradually work towards the goal and the objective to share their teachings with all those who choose to learn and practice. So by someone choosing to learn and practice and actually experience enlightenment during the lifetime of a Buddha, that enlightened being's mind understands what it takes to get to enlightenment and they've learned directly with a Buddha. So there's this very clean transmission of wisdom from a Buddha to this enlightened being. And now that enlightened being is capable of having a very wonderful life for the rest of their life. And if they choose, they can share the teachings with others and help influence others to learn and practice these teachings and for them to attain enlightenment as well. So by learning and practicing the teachings, you're essentially helping yourself, you're helping those close to you, and you're helping all of humanity to bring these teachings into the world. And in terms of studying directly with the Buddha, you would be helping that Buddha to accomplish their goals of bringing these teachings into the world in such a way that they can be sustained for a long-term period and help all of humanity to actually get to enlightenment. Well, so here you you have mentioned some of the current misunderstandings that are maybe common now in only one tradition, which is, as I understand, is Theravada. So a, according to impermanence, let's say that after 100, 200 years from now, there will be different misunderstandings. Hopefully there will be no, or let's say it would be great if there will be no misunderstandings. but. Uh, after 100, 200 years from now, how can for a practitioner to determine if these are the right understanding or the misunderstanding of the teachings? Okay, I'll answer that question, but let me back up to something that you shared. So number one through eight are misunderstandings that you will see in the Theravada tradition. You'll see some people that will have these uh, misunderstandings. Not all, but you'll see some, right? Number nine is primarily in other traditions. You'll see in Mahayana, Vajrayana, perhaps, Zen Buddhism, things like this. In the Theravada tradition, the Theravada practitioners are fairly clear for the most part. You will see that they're very clear on what a Buddha is and what a Buddha isn't for the most part. They understand that they are not going to be a Buddha when they attain enlightenment. They might not understand 100% of what a Buddha is and what a Buddha is going to be looking to accomplish, but they at least know that they are not a Buddha. This idea that all enlightened beings are a Buddha or have Buddhahood or have Buddha nature, this comes from some other traditions. But in terms of 100 years, 200, 300 years from now, if people are learning and practicing these teachings, the way that you know that you're learning the teachings of a Buddha is that the discontentedness will diminish, that you'll see the progress in the condition of the mind. And the way that you get to that is you don't believe the teachings. Instead, you learn and you independently verify the teachings. Even today, if you're learning teachings, any teacher who's sharing the teachings of the Buddha, when they share the teachings, their students should be able to independently verify the teachings. So this is why you look to the words of the Buddha as the original source text, but this is also why you look in your own practice. So like when I teach the universal truth of impermanence, I teach it, but then I say, okay, now look around you. Do you see anything that's permanent? Can you find anything that's permanent? This is how you independently verify the teachings. So someone who's sharing the teachings of the Buddha should be guiding you, not just in your learning, 
but they should be guiding you in your reflection in your practice so that you can independently verify the teachings. And when you see it with your own eyes, that's what leads to wisdom. And it's that wisdom that's antidoting the ignorance and ultimately brings the mind into the enlightened mental state. So whether it's today, 100 years, 200, 300 years from now, or even 3,000 years from now, or 30,000 years from now, if you're learning, you should be able to learn what somebody's saying. You should be able to independently verify that something like the universal truth of impermanence, for example, is the truth, and then see the wisdom in that. And now, as you practice more and more of these teachings, like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, and so forth and so on, you should see the discontentedness gradually diminishing. And that's the proof that you have, the proof positive that what you're learning is actually improving the condition of the mind because you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing. Things that once created anger in the mind, maybe now you just get frustrated or irritated or annoyed. And then eventually you get to the point where that same exact thing that arose so much anger in the mind, the same thing happens and there's no effect at all. The mind is just completely peaceful. And that's how you know that your mind is progressing, it's evolving, the condition of the mind's improving because you're no longer experiencing discontentedness in all these individual situations. And then you do that enough and eventually you get to complete liberation where the mind is completely enlightened and you no longer experience any discontentedness whatsoever for an extended period of time, essentially the rest of this life. Well, so someone may think like a, uh, I trust my teacher, so I'm gonna believe everything they will share with me. This won't produce enlightenment. It's important that you trust people. That's part of what an enlightened mind is going to practice. But belief isn't going to lead to wisdom. So therefore, it's not going to produce enlightenment. So you trust a teacher. You might trust an individual, but you do that with discernment. So when you sit down and you read a teacher's books or you sit in their discourses or you receive personal guidance and you ask questions, do you see loving kindness from your teacher? Do you see compassion? Do you see generosity? Do you see right intention, practicing harmlessness and all the other aspects of right intention? Do you see right speech? Are they practicing right speech and speaking in ways that the Buddha taught? Are they having right action and all these other teachings? You should see the qualities of enlightenment in the individual that you're learning from. And then with your discernment, with your wise decision making, you're like, okay, let me start investigating these teachings and let me start learning them and start applying what it is that this teacher is sharing with me and see how this leads to the improved condition of my own mind. But you can't do that through belief. If you believe something, you don't know if it's true or false. Whereas if you independently verify the truth, now you have wisdom because you know what's true. And then there you will start making decisions through this wisdom, which will lead to wholesome outcomes. Well, let's go to Nick. Thank you, Basim. Yes, teacher. Uh, today's class, the misunderstanding of Gautama Buddha's teachings, that's the way you were explaining it, it's due to impermanence. And earlier in the class, you gave us the example of the childhood telephone game, uh, you know, pink elephant to uh, whatever, yellow dinosaur, you know, going around in a circle, whispering in someone's ear, the telephone game. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Buddha predicted this. And the way he said it was, uh, 
uh, it was a prediction called the five disappearances. And the way that works was five 500 year cycles. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that, sir. Yes, that's what I've seen that the Buddha described these five 500 year cycles that from the time of his death, there would be this 2,500 year period that his teachings would initially through the first 500 years would be very strong and very vibrant. And there would be lots of people attaining enlightenment. The union of the community would be very strong. But then from there, there would be this slow declining of his teachings. So the second 500 year cycle, he said people would be very strong in meditation. And then the third 500 year cycle, he said that scholars would be very good at kind of describing his teachings and kind of summarizing his teachings in a scholarly way. Then he talks in the fourth 500 year cycle, he said people would be very generous in contributing resources to the sharing of his teachings. And then he said in the fifth 500 year cycle, people would be highly confused about what he actually taught. There would be arguing and fighting and disagreement about what his actual teachings were. Then he said at that point, at the 2,500 year mark, there would arise this new Buddha in the world that would bring the teachings back into the world in such a way that all of humanity could learn them and then they could be understood and the entire world would essentially gradually over many generations attain enlightenment is essentially what he was sharing. So these five 500 year cycles is exactly what we saw occur, that we saw this union of the community the first 500 years after his death. We saw that during the second 500 years, you know, when meditation was predicted to be very strong, this is the time where Jesus came into the world. There's over 20 different references to meditation during the lifetime of the Jesus in the actual Bible. You can see over 20 different references. Prayer becomes very important in Jesus's teachings. In that third 500-year period where the scholars are supposed to be very vibrant and describing his teachings, this is where we actually see the creation of things like the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is a scholarly representation, a summarization and an interpretation of what people think that the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime. It's the discourses and the sutras that are actually the words of the Buddha, but it's the Dhammapada, which is the scholarly work that a lot of people refer to, which aren't really the words of the Buddha. They're an interpretation by scholars. And this is a period of time where we see a lot of scholars emerging in the world and writing all kinds of things about the Buddha's teachings that actually occurred. And then in that fourth 500 year cycle where there was supposed to be lots of generosity, this is where when you walk around Thailand, you will see during that period of time, there were lots of people who were giving land and giving money to build temples. Pretty much all the temples here in Thailand were built during that time frame. So people were actually practicing generosity a whole lot during that period of time. And then now the period that we just came out of, which is where the Buddha said people would highly disagree of what his teachings are. There would be all this kind of fighting and kind of disagreements and arguing over what his teachings were, you could just spend five minutes on Facebook, go into any of the Facebook groups, and you can see that that's what occurs. So this prediction that the Buddha describes, it's called the five disappearances. And it doesn't show up in the Pali Canon. I haven't seen it in the Pali Canon, but there's other canons. There's the Chinese Canon and there's other canons that contain collections of teachings. And this Pali Canon that we 
referred to in the Theravada tradition, it goes back to about 800 to 1200 years ago. And that's when we can kind of see the largest collection of the Buddhist teachings assembled. But we know that not everything the Buddha taught is actually in the Pali Canon, that there's things that were kind of lost along the way. And there are things that ended up in other canons like the Chinese canon. There's things that are in there that aren't in the Pali canon. And this is the whole reason why a new Buddha was needed in the world is because of this slow degrading of his teachings over time due to impermanence. And this new Buddha is needed in order to explain the teachings in a way that can guide countless people to enlightenment. And then after their death, that countless more people can attain enlightenment and continue to experience that. And the Buddha predicted all of this during his lifetime according to what we see in the Chinese canon. And I've seen those teachings, but they're not in the actual Pali canon. I think Basim was asking this as well, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask more specifically um, for clarification on what you just said. Uh, with the new Buddha um, teaching, is there going to be um, new impermanence, new uh, five, 500 year uh, cycles of, um, you know, disappearances, or is it, as the Bible says, there'll be like a thousand years of uh, heaven on earth and that sort of thing. Can you tie this together or elaborate on this teacher? Yeah, the new Buddha, even though the Buddha didn't explain this exactly, but he did say that this new Buddha was going to restore his teachings back into the world and all of humanity would learn them. They, this isn't in the Pali Canon. That's why I answered it the way I did towards the beginning of class, but it is in this Chinese Canon. So it's explained that this new Buddha is going to restore the teachings back into the world and all of humanity is going to learn and practice from that point forward. Because essentially we went through this long period of 2,500 years where humanity has just been declining and declining and declining. The condition of our mind is getting worse and worse in all of humanity. And we're experiencing rapes and murders and wars and stealing and sexual misconduct and all these problems and all this heartache in the world that this new Buddha is going to bring the teachings back into the world in a way that they are then sustained long into the future. And there's the tradition of Buddhist teachings that is calling this individual Maitreya Buddha. And this Maitreya word relates to the word metta or loving kindness, that this new Buddha has an enormous amount of loving kindness for the world and interested in seeing the world be well and be peaceful. And then we see the tradition of Christianity that is waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And then we see in Muslim teachings, there's a prophet that is expected there. We see Judaism has a certain prophet that is being waiting for in there. And there's all these different traditions that feel that they have this individual that is going to kind of come back into the world. And from my understanding is all of these different traditions, while there's some people who think these are each individual beings that everybody's waiting for someone different, in my opinion, everybody's waiting for the same person. They're all looking for this same individual, but they just don't realize it. Buddhists are thinking that Maitreya Buddha is going to come back in and fix everything. Christianity is thinking that Jesus is going to come back and then so forth and so on. We see these other things. And what I'm sharing is that there's going to be just this one individual who comes into the world, shares the teachings in such a way that all of humanity can benefit from these teachings. And they're going to share them in such a way that they're preserved, that 
countless people can attain enlightenment during their life, but then long after their life, and they're not going to decline from there. They're only going to continue to grow. And this individual is going to make sure all the things are in place that that will occur. So just like the Buddha predicted that there's going to be this decline of his teachings and an arising of a Buddha, what I'm sharing with you is this new Buddha that's coming into the world or has come into the world is going to share things in such a way that there isn't going to be a decline. There's only going to be continuous progression because nowadays we have things that didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. During the lifetime of the Buddha, many populations in the world spoke different languages. There wasn't a common language in the world to allow the teachings to come into the world in a way that the entire world could learn them. Today, we have the English language that is the international language and that these teachings can actually reach an international audience. So any Buddha coming into the world today, in my opinion, would teach in English so that their teachings can reach the entire world and they can be more sustainable from that perspective. A new Buddha coming into the world would have the ability to actually write books themselves, record teachings, uh, whether it be in video or podcast that we have today or other ways of recording the teachings, they would be able to preserve the teachings in ways that didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. And then also a new Buddha coming into the world, looking back on the problems that occurred during the lifetime of the Buddha and Jesus and Prophet Muhammad by not having a successor and somebody that could continue the teachings. That is one of the major things that allowed the teachings to decline. The Buddha himself didn't appoint anybody who was the successor of him. Even though his son was enlightened during the lifetime of the Buddha, he never left guidance and said, okay, my son is going to take over after my death and they're going to continue the teachings from this point forward. Or my closest student, Sariputta, or Ananda. He didn't leave this kind of guidance. So once the Buddha died, the teachings just went through those five 500-year cycles, as I mentioned. So any Buddha arising today is going to have the English language going for them. They're going to have the ability to write things down, record things in a way that others didn't have in the past. And looking back on the life of these other teachers, they will understand that they need to leave a successor so that the teachings can continue to flourish long after this individual's death. And a Buddha who awakens and has wisdom is going to be able to see these things very clearly and ensure that all these things and others are in place so that countless people can attain enlightenment during their lifetime and then after their death as well. Okay, sir. So I know the Bible um, gives um, signs of when Jesus would return. Um, things like earthquakes, famine, you know, uh, a lot of, lot of things, a uh, lot, lot of um, not pleasant things in a tribulation type of sense. Did the Buddha, did Gautama Buddha have any predictions about when Maitreya will, will, will come back? Or is it just 2,500 years after his death, which is around this time now? He said 2,500 years after his death. And he died in 483 BCE. So 2,500 years after his death was 2017, which was five years ago. And any Buddha that arises in the world isn't going to just step out on the stage and announce that they've arrived because 
first of all, people aren't going to believe that they're actually a Buddha. And a Buddha is not going to ask people to believe that he's a Buddha. And a Buddha doesn't need everybody to know he's a Buddha in order for others to learn and practice and to get to enlightenment. A Buddha is wise enough that they can arise in the world, share their teachings in such a way, guiding countless people to enlightenment without anybody ever knowing that they're an actual Buddha. And it actually helps for their students not to know that they're a Buddha. Because if their students knew that they were a Buddha, they might have admiration and bow down to them and they might be on their best behavior when they're around this individual. But by people not knowing who is a Buddha, then a Buddha can actually observe the true qualities of their student's mind and actually be more effective in helping them to eradicate any pollution that is in the mind. A Buddha is not interested in admiration and honoring and people showing this enormous amount of gratitude and respect to them. A Buddha is going to be teaching how to do that, but not just for themselves, but for other people, because that's what it takes for their students to get to enlightenment. They would have to have appreciation. They would have to have politeness and respect towards all beings, not just the Buddha themselves. So at the point of time of 2017, which was five years ago, that person who arises isn't going to just start going around and claiming that they're a Buddha and asking for people to bow down to them and give them all this admiration because that would be conceit, that would be arrogance, and a Buddha wouldn't have that. Instead, a Buddha is just going to start teaching, and they're just going to start sharing their teachings and start guiding people to enlightenment. Slowly but surely, people may actually discover that this person is a Buddha, but that's not the goal of what they're trying to accomplish. They're trying to accomplish a large community of beings who are enlightened, and they can actually do that better if people don't know that they're actually a Buddha. We have a few questions on uh, YouTube and Facebook. Susan asks, did Buddha say this world will ever stop, or is it endless? He left this as an undeclared teaching. He described his teachings, of course, all throughout his lifetime, But then he actually shared at one point where he said, these are my undeclared teachings. And he gave those, and I have them in a couple different chapters in volume one, where it lists out his undeclared teachings. And then I also have the words of the Buddha where he explains the undeclared teachings, and that's one of them. He doesn't say that the world, meaning the universe, he doesn't describe whether it's finite or if it's infinite. But we do understand the universal truth of impermanence that humanity is not permanent because when he talks about the world, he's not talking about humanity. We know that humanity arose, it changed, and then it's going to fade away just like everything else because of impermanence, right? Human beings are not going to be permanently on this earth because once beings all become more and more enlightened, we'll actually see a declining of the population on earth because there's going to be less and less beings to actually be reborn. The Buddha didn't say this specifically, but you can kind of look out at the world and discern this yourself. Even though he said that the universe, in terms of the world, he didn't describe whether it's infinite or finite. He left that as an undeclared teaching. We can understand the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence, and we know that humanity is for sure impermanent based on these teachings and all that we understand about them. Speaking of humanity and following up to Susan's question, uh, I believe it's in the same canon that talks about, maybe one of the other canons, the Chinese or one of those other ones that talks about the five disappearances, Maitreya Buddha rising. Um, 
humanity ends, I think, when uh, Maitri is here, 80,000 years? Does it say that? Something like that in one of those canons. 80,000 years from the time of Maitreya till the end of humanity, when everyone will, I believe, what you're teaching is everyone by that time will attain enlightenment. Yeah, so whenever a teacher like Gautama Buddha or Jesus Christ or others are making predictions about the future and they're sharing what's going to happen in the future, they're oftentimes described based on their understanding at that time. And they can't really foresee things that are going to happen. They understand what is going to happen, but by the the way that they explain it is based on what they understand at the time. So, for example, one of the things you will see in the Chinese canon is when the Buddha's talking about Maitreya Buddha, he talks about a Buddha who essentially the seas recede to the point where this Buddha can walk from the west over to the east, that they can essentially step over the ocean and be able to come to the east from the west. And this is what was described at the time is that, you know, the Buddha foresaw this receding of the seas for this person to be able to step over the seas like a creek. Well, that's because during that lifetime, they couldn't have foreseen something like an airplane, right? 2,500 years ago, they wouldn't have been able to understand that there would be this technology that would come into the world to allow somebody to fly from, say, the West and and arrive in the East and uh, start sharing teachings in the East. So they described it as the seas would recede and then this person would step over the seas. But in reality, today, we know that the way that things are transpiring, that that part of it, the seas receding, isn't 100% accurate. And likewise, in that same discourse, the Buddha explains that during the lifetime of Maitreya Buddha, that human beings would have a lifespan of 80,000 years. And the way that some people read this is they think that a human being at the time of Maitreya Buddha will live for 80,000 years. One human being will have one life that's 80,000 years. But that's not what the Buddha was explaining. What he was explaining is at the time of Maitreya Buddha, that humanity would exist for another 80,000 years. So from the time of Maitreya arising, bringing the teachings back into the world, humanity will have another 80,000 years in which to create all of humanity experiencing enlightenment and humanity will cease to exist after 80,000 years. The Buddha himself, Gautama Buddha, didn't explain it that way because of this lack of understanding of how to explain things based on the culture and what they understood at the time and then also our translations of that. But what I'm sharing with you is that from the time that Maitreya Buddha awakes and turns the Dhamma wheel, from that point forward, humanity has 80,000 years before humanity will cease to exist. Whether the universe, whether the world will exist beyond that, that's an undeclared teaching that Gautama Buddha shared and should remain undeclared. But in terms of humanity itself, the way that I understand this is that from the time of the turning of the Dhamma wheel by Maitreya Buddha, humanity will last for another 80,000 years. I understand the answer to your question clearly. I would just like to clarify uh, one, one part, um, just for the audience perhaps. You're saying the Buddha, when he might have known that uh, he might have been able to foresee airplanes and things, but 
there was no way he could get into the intricate workings of planes and talking about aerodynamics and that sort of things. Like people wouldn't just get it. So he kind of just described it a little bit differently to get to the explanation. Is, is, that, is that correct, sir? I'm not 100% sure if the Buddha during his lifetime understood the technology of airplanes coming to be and just chose not to explain it and explained it in the way that you're saying about receding of the sea so that Maitreya could make their way over. I'm not sure because I am not in the mind of Gautama Buddha. But what we see in the text of the Chinese canon is that the Buddha is depicted as saying that the seas would recede to the point where this new individual, this Maitreya Buddha, could step over the sea and make their way from the west to the east. But I don't know whether Gautama Buddha could foresee the technology of airplanes or not. Hey, thank you, Teacher David. There's also another question on YouTube. Radius, he asks, how can someone be a Buddha with all the teachings today? The teachings in the world have diminished significantly as the Buddha predicted that there's these five disappearances, these five 500 year cycles, so that even though we have temples, even though we have ordained practitioners, even though we have books here and there, impermanence has highly affected these teachings. And any Buddha coming into the world today would observe that these things are going on and that these things exist, but the teachings are not in such a condition that people can readily attain enlightenment. This is why we don't see a massive number of enlightened beings walking around in the world because the teachings have degraded to such a point. So when the Buddha talks about the disappearances or the five disappearances, it's not to say that his teachings will completely be removed from the face of the earth, meaning there won't even be an ordained practitioner, there won't even be a temple that exists. Instead, what he's explaining is that the understanding of his teachings will have disappeared, that even though there'll be these remnants of the Buddha having existed, that a new Buddha coming into the world would be faced with the challenge of all these beings in the world massively misunderstanding his teachings, and it would be that Buddha's goal and his objective to then be able to restore the teachings such that people would be able to understand them. So a new Buddha would offer things like enhanced translations, enhanced word choice, enhanced resources, and things to be able to learn the teachings in ways that are not currently taught today. So for example, the word suffering is used very widely today in regard to the Buddhist teachings. I would say that a new Buddha would not use that word suffering because it doesn't accurately reflect what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime. When you look at what the Buddha taught around the word dukkha, which is the Pali word, he actually explains three different feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. The word suffering doesn't capture that. It only captures the painful feelings. So we're missing 66% of the explanation of what the Buddha was actually describing during his lifetime. So while we have translations all over the place of what people feel that the Buddha taught during his lifetime, 
the words, the word choices, the phrases, the translations are very outdated in my opinion, and they don't represent what the Buddha was actually teaching during his lifetime. So any new Buddha would need to rectify all of that. They would need to clarify all of that in ways that the massive amount of people would be able to then be able to learn, reflect, and practice to be able to experience enlightenment in this life. And a final question from Facebook. Manal asks, Sir, why did the Buddha say, number five, a grateful uh, uh, on the five treasures? Why did the Buddha say on number five, a grateful and thankful person is rare in the world? Is this because most of the world would not have been raised understanding the teachings and thereby pointing towards the need to help humanity learn the Noble Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, etc.? Here's the reason why, Manal, is that when a Buddha arises in the world, the world is in such disrepair and is in such conflict that human minds have degraded and are in such ignorance and such delusion that the world is polluted with craving anger and ignorance. So what a Buddha is seeing during his lifetime is that the world is in disrepair. And it's a Buddha that arises despite all of that and arises above all of that and starts sharing their teachings in the world in a way that's going to help all of humanity. So a Buddha would observe in the world, and perhaps you can observe even not being a Buddha Manal, that when you go out in the world, depending on where you live, do you see a lot of gratitude and appreciation and thankfulness amongst people that you interact with? You know, during the lifetime of an actual Buddha, when a Buddha arises, they're arising because they're needed in the world. It's not that a being like God is creating a Buddha or arising the Buddha or making a Buddha arise. It's that the world has become such utter disrepair that there's a being who loves the world and has so much compassion for the world beyond anyone else that exists during that lifetime. And that individual sees how such utter disrepair the world is. And that person's loving kindness and compassion is so strong that they pursue and pursue and pursue to rise above that disrepair. And they do it through their own efforts, their own independent journey. And they have such loving kindness and compassion for the whole world that they then dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those teachings. Having accomplished what they accomplished on their own, they now know that the rest of the world is going to just continue to fester in this cesspit of craving anger and ignorance if they don't do something to share their teachings into the world in a way that others can benefit. So that's why the Buddha would say that it's so rare for there to be someone who has gratitude and appreciation in the world because a Buddha would arise during a period of time in humanity when people's minds are just utterly polluted and a Buddha would be able to see the enormous amount of discontentedness all throughout the world. And it would be very rare for someone to be thankful and have gratitude during the lifetime of a Buddha. Well, sir, I know us here are very grateful and thankful for your teachings. So thank you. Yes, you're welcome. I'm very pleased to share all of these teachings with all of you and pleased that you guys are very dedicated and diligent to learning. 
Well, you know, teacher, that I don't have any plans to have a family or children, but uh, what is your advice for the best thing to, uh, let's say, teach or help my uh, nephews, my nieces to do if they lived at the time of the new Buddha? If somebody lives during the lifetime of a Buddha, it's uh, a huge advantage because First, it's very rare to obtain the human state because the human state is the ideal state to actually attain enlightenment. So just to get to the human realm, no matter what time period in history, it requires a whole lot of wholesome gamma to actually get into a human existence. But to get into a human existence and to do that at the lifetime of a Buddha, this requires an enormous amount of wholesome gamma to actually be able to do that. And then to be able to study and learn directly with a Buddha, again, enormous amount of wholesome gamma, wholesome decisions that someone would have to make in order to get to that point. Having done that, if somebody learns, reflects, and practices what a Buddha's teaching, at that point, they have the best possible chance to attain enlightenment because they're in the human realm. They're in the human realm at the time of an actual Buddha, and if they're learning and practicing directly with a Buddha, this would be the most ideal situation for any being on the face of the earth. They would aspire to have those criteria occur. So if you're alive during the lifetime of the Buddha or your nieces and nephews are alive during the lifetime of the Buddha and they know that this person's a Buddha, then they should learn, reflect, and practice because that's the most ideal time to eliminate discontentedness, get to enlightenment, and escape this whole cycle of rebirth. Many thanks, teacher. That's all for today. All right. Well, thank you all for your questions. I know today's class is a little bit longer than normal, and that's okay because some classes are a little bit shorter, some classes are a little bit longer. There's not just one permanent fixed schedule. You guys had a lot of questions today, so I was interested in honoring that and being sure that I make myself available for any questions that you have. As you see that there's a lot of impermanence that has affected a lot of things in the world. You know, people have different opinions, have different views. There's all these things that arise. They change and they cease to exist. This universal truth of impermanence even affects the teachings of a Buddha, particularly a Buddha who taught during an oral tradition. And that's the main way that they had to be able to share their teachings is through an oral tradition. But today we have the ability to capture these teachings in many different ways that didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. And this is going to allow us to sustain the teachings in the world for now and for long, long, long into the future. And by you ensuring that you're learning and practicing what the Buddha actually taught using the words of the Buddha, this will ensure that you're learning, reflecting, and practicing independently verifying the truth and observing the discontentedness gradually diminishing. And as you see that occurring, then you know that you're moving closer and closer to enlightenment because you're learning and practicing what a Buddha actually taught. Essentially, by the time you get to enlightenment, your mind is almost like a duplicate copy of a Buddha's mind. Not exactly, because a Buddha has certain qualities that an average enlightened being doesn't have. But in terms of the wisdom, you're going to have a somewhat... Uh, relatable amount of wisdom 
in terms of what it takes to get to enlightenment. A Buddha is going to have a whole lot more depth, a whole lot of more experiences. They're going to be able to explain it in ways that an average enlightened being isn't going to have. But in terms of the teachings, if you get to enlightenment, you will essentially have replicated the wisdom of what it takes to get to enlightenment in your mind. And you will have the resources of how to actually accomplish that. So if you continue to share what you know, either as a teacher for some people who aspire to be a teacher or just with your friends and family and life partners and people who maybe ask you questions. If you just share what you know, like we talked about with Jan and things that you don't know, say, I don't know, then when you stay close to that truth and only share the truth, then in this way, what we're putting out into the world is the truth about what the path to enlightenment is. And this is how the teachings get sustained in the world. Whereas if there's ego or there's arrogance and we share things that we don't really know because we're afraid to say, I don't know. If there's that ego in there and the mind's not willing and able to say, I don't know, but instead kind of lies, then this is going to degrade the teachings over time. What we can do during our lifetime is ensure that we're learning, reflecting, and practicing the words of the Buddha. And this will bring the teachings back into the world. It will restore them back into the world and sustain them for a very long period of time, long, long, long into the future so that countless beings can attain enlightenment. And in order to do that, we have to be able to see the misunderstandings in the world. So the more that you understand what the Buddha did teach, and you incorporate that into your life practice and you see that it's improving the condition of your mind, you will be able to look around the world and you'll be able to see some of the misunderstandings. And while there are countless beings who are practicing some of these misunderstandings, we shouldn't look down on them. We shouldn't judge them. We shouldn't think that they're bad people or that they've done anything unwholesome necessarily. They might just be honoring and respecting the teachers that have passed down their teachings throughout all these years. Their mind is unknowing of true reality. They just don't understand what they don't understand. So we don't need to judge these beings. We can have loving kindness and compassion, concern for their misfortune. And where we're able to open our doors and invite people in to learn the words of the Buddha and improve the teachings that are in the world, we can invite and keep open arms to all these people by not judging them, by not looking down on them, not thinking that they've done anything wrong or unwholesome, but instead just continue to practice the Eightfold Path and all these other teachings that the Buddha taught and just keep open arms to invite other people to come in as they choose to come in without forcing them, without putting pressure on people, but just making invitations for people to come learn the teachings of the Buddha if they choose. And then when they choose to do that, they will see the truth for themselves that these teachings actually work to improve the condition of the mind. Next week on Sunday, we're going to be covering all the other topics that are part of this book, but aren't necessarily in the actual chapters. So there's frequently asked questions. There's how to determine if you're enlightened or not things like this that are towards the back of the book that are going to be part of next Sunday's class. So you can read all of that content and come to class and I'll be sharing with you the frequently asked questions that you'll see in the Buddhist world. And this will help you to once again, see the path to enlightenment more and more clearly. And I'll also share with you how to determine if you're actually enlightened or not. On Wednesday, I'm going to be refreshing your memory about 
how to do loving kindness meditation. If you were part of this program at the beginning, I did a four part series of how to do loving kindness meditation, but now it's been a good three or four months since I've done that. So before we end this iteration of the group learning program, I'm gonna refresh your memory to ensure you understand and remember how to do loving kindness meditation. If you've joined us since that time, then you'll actually be learning that for the first time perhaps and be able to get really in depth with understanding loving kindness meditation, how to do it, why to do it, why are we doing it, you know, what does it do for us and those kind of things. So I'm gonna be doing that on Wednesday. So I'll see you either Wednesday or next Sunday, maybe both of those days. Have a very lovely rest of the day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.